Let's see what's in the kitty, shall we? Ninepence. Oh, God, what are we going to do? Don't worry, Mr. B. I have a cunning plan to solve the problem. Yes, Mordick, let us not forget that you tried to solve the problem of your mother's low ceiling by cutting off her head. <laughs> Well, look, Liz, I think before you get to the big stuff, I've got, like, I want to just share two things for you by way of sort of visual order of business. And then obviously want a very, you know, brief or not fools and horses update. But uh, and anything else you want to share too, Shepard. But I just, I realised last night as I watched Barry episode eight, that I I really am putting myself in mortal peril here. Like, you know, in two weeks time, succession ted and barry are all going to leave my life it's going to be like step by step all over again i'm going to have this oh. uh and i'm not going to know what to do with myself it's going to be something man it's going to be something i don't know what to say about all of that i, I suppose save ted for last because it's going to hopefully be nice and happy and um yeah but my right. god very exciting stuff maybe now is an opportune moment for me to mention only fools and horses because we finished season six and that I didn't realize, and this is the, the season from 1986. This is the end of the format that I always, and I think most people associate with Bonacles and Horses, the 30 minute format. From this point on, the next two seasons are like 50 minutes a pop. So, so, that, so that's nice. And now it's going into, you know, Raquel lies ahead and Cassandra and then Damien and all of that, which hasn't even been hinted at yet, which is great, you know. It's like what being deep in Shetty Long, as it were, and then being, and we still have Kirsty Alley, you know, and, and all of that. But if you're ready for the uh, the little sledgehammer news, the first Christmas special was 86 Christmas. We watched it, and it ended not enjoying it, and it wasn't very good. And during it, it was about an hour and 15 minutes long, during it, it wasn't like I was pooey what sucks, but I was just like, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, it was only afterwards, it was a bit of a Beverly Hills Cop 3 wannabe. It was only afterwards, it was like, oh, that wasn't very good. And also the ending, the, it had no end punchline. It just ended on this really weird edit. Um, and then it just like, just ended. And it was like, oh, okay, that's weird. And it just had this really emotional scene as well. I was like, oh, okay, but it wasn't like an abrupt emotional ending. It was just, it was this weird, it tried to do a joke, but it, then it was like not quite, and then it just went boink, and then the music. And during it, it's all about basically Rodney meets this girl who turns out to be really super, super upper class, even like a duchess or something. And it's like, they have, they don't have a romance, but they have a sort of a friendship with a possible romance in the future. And Dale just totally gay crashes all the posh, social do's you know in the countryside and that there lies the humor but it comes across that Dell is being a bit like really self-destructive and he's trying to push them together but just obviously sabotaging everything and i was so worried and and then at a certain point the dad actually mentions to someone specifically oh she's leaving for new york in a few months anyway so she just likes a bit of rough and it's, that's why she's sort of with rodney you know um 
And just knowing that made me feel better as I was watching it because it made me uncomfortable that Dell was ruining it for Rodney and himself, potentially. Um, but then at the end, Dell was just like, it had all been totally destroyed. And Rodney was like, you always destroy everything in my life. And it was like, it's like really fucking hell. And then it's like this weird little half joke, which doesn't quite land. And then in the middle of that, it, it ends. I'm like, oh no, I was relieved that she was going to leave anyway, but it was still like awkward. But but then I, I read that actually it had a really troubled production and everyone was ill at certain points and lots and lots of different things. And they were still editing it the night of Christmas morning. Uh, before it was due to be broadcast, uh, which wow. is insanity. So that explains the ridiculousness. And people, the public, didn't like it. And I wasn't very familiar with it. I, I might have seen it once before, but maybe not. And I'm sure it's because it's, it was very unpopular when it, on that Christmas day. And I doubt the BBC repeated it very often. So it's, it, it's, a, it's, the, it's a big blip. And it's like, wow, it didn't quite work. It did have the Havelock man from uh, For Your Eyes Only, Melina Havelock's dad, who gets killed at the beginning with the mum and sets it all off by Hector Gonzalez. But him, you know, give us a kiss, give us a kiss, give you a nut. And I saw him in a play when I was a kid in And Then There Were None in London. And he's in it as the dad. And so that was nice. But um, other than that, it was a stinker. But it was nice to see, oh, it's a famous stinker. In the, and John Sullivan, years later, in an interview in like 2001 or something, when he was asked if he had any regrets about the series, he says he regrets that episode existing. So it's like, wow, fair enough then. Um, and so then we watched like a few days later or something, the next year's Christmas episode, which was about an hour long and quite forgettable, um, but it was okay. And it was obviously better than the other one. And it was like, fine. But maybe, you know, maybe it was just like finding its footing. And maybe because the other, yeah, the leads are all off doing other things. So maybe, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's good, it's fine, but I can't even really describe it. So that's basically where I am, which is for what it's worth. And I have one observation that I never mentioned, and I keep forgetting to mention it. So I'm going to take this opportunity. Roger Lloyd Pack does the best acting in the universe in one episode around season two, where they're in the bathroom and the camera is where the mirror should be, and the audience is obviously behind the camera, and it's Del Boy in like the pub bathroom or whatever, it's Del Boy and, and uh, Trigger, and they're washing their hands whilst they're apparently looking into their own reflections in the mirror, but obviously it's like the audience, and they're doing this, and at one point, Del's like talking, and Trigger looks into Del's eyes through the reflection, as you would, and then you think, but there is no mirror there, and, and it's so brief, but you're like, fuck me, Lloyd Pack. Did you just do the best piece of acting in the universe? And the geniuses, I don't know how many people have ever noticed that, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's a, it totally sells it, so subliminally, and it's beautiful. So good on Lloyd Pack, because he went on to be in an episode of Doctor Who with David Tennant, where he gives, and I've always said this, the worst performance in history. So it's sort of balanced the universe now that I've seen this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very happy to report that. Good stuff. Nice. I saw Lloyd Pack in a pub once in London, and he looked very oh, sweet. happy. I think he was doing a Sudoku or something. Like, you know, it was paper on the <laughs> pint in hand. and just, just seemed very content, and no one was bothering oh. him for selfies or trigger moments is nice so that, yeah 
long time. No one walking past saying, you're right, Dave? Because I bet he gets that a lot, okay. randomly. Because <laughs> I'm sure Nicholas Nunes does as well. I um, that's lovely. Vodoloy Pack was in, so we watched the Smiley uh, TV shows, um, uh, you know, with the Inca Taylor, Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness, and then we watched Smiley's People, the sequel, which they made a few years later, which is the third book adaptation from that book trilogy. They never make the middle one. And then we watched the Gary Oldman Tinker Taylor, which is really good. It's a really strong adaptation. Seen it before, seen it a couple of times, but it was really good to see it like immediately. And, you know, Marta was like, oh, nice. And just seeing, oh, it's Cumberbatch. Oh, it's Hardy. Oh, that's nice. You know, and seeing recognizable faces in roles that she'd just seen over the course of like 13 episodes. So it's nice in that respect. Um, like Cumberbatch is playing this guy. He's like, oh, and, you know, Toby Stevens and John Hurd and, and fucking Firth, who's always been brilliant in that. So anyway, Roger Lloyd packs in it, um, and it's brilliant. But when his name came up in the credits at the beginning, I was like, I said to Marta, oh, someone's in this, and you're not going to believe, because uh, I was like, oh, trigger. But he's filmed in such a clever way. He's fairly significant character, but the director very cleverly oh, never quite see his face because he's a spy who is one of these bland spies who just like blends in because he's so unremarkable and because of that the camera just never quite even when he's sitting still he's sort of obscured by the steering wheel when he's driving or something it's genius but the whole way through i was like any minute now any minute until actually at a certain point i'm like oh I, okay no we're not going to see his face it's trigger <laughs> so yeah good stuff good stuff nice twist Nice ships. I love it. I love it. Hey, look, before we get to the main, main event, I just wanted to say, I watched a movie at the weekend. I just wanted to see if you'd seen it. Have you Have you seen I, Daniel Blake, Ken Loach? It's, um, um, no, I haven't. About five years ago or something, and it's it, he got the palm door for it. Came out of retirement to make it. And I have watched oh. it for several years, honestly, because it's basically, it's the industry I work in. And so I was just sort of like, you know, I don't know. It just felt like homework almost, you know. But I, but I just, um, but I found it profound, man. I watched it on as my Sunday morning screening list last week, and holy oh, nice, nice. I, I, Who's I, in it? Um, good question, man. I, I can't tell you. It's a stand-up comic. From I've heard somewhere. the name. Yeah. Um, where's Where's the comic from? He's from Newcastle. Yeah, he's he's reasonably famous. So I, I just, yeah, it's it's kind of got like. A cast of characters who are probably all on the circuit in British stuff, but are basically sort of, you know, um, just uh, they're, they're not particularly recognisable, I guess, deliberately, so that it sort of feels real, you know. But um, but yes, mate, I thought it was brilliant. I really recommend it if you ever get your chance to watch it. Like, and I, I beefed three times, Shep. So there were there were weepy eyes wow. times, man. I found it very affecting and really good. So there's there's a little record. You know, I'm gonna say I'm gonna confess, I don't know how many Ken Loach films I've seen. Not that many. Um I've seen um Kathy Come Home. Yeah. Might be why I've never seen any others. Um but he, <laughs> he did um because it's fucking you know really, really good because it succeeds in what it's trying to do, which is fuck you up. Um so that's so yes, hooray for Kathy Come Home. Uh, but he and I, I saw Kess, so another another one which will probably to put me off ever going near Loach ever again. Like, cheers for that. So, his, his so Uber that is not top of the dog list, is it? His Uber is not the top of the dog list. It's not feel good, 
and I respect the hell out of that. But because of that, I haven't seen the wheat in the barley, which I think is what it's called with Gillian Murphy, oh, and, and and many many other things. Maybe there is something else that I'm forgetting, but I think I've just seen those two. But I guess if you're going to see two Ken Loaches, might as well be those. But I, Daniel Blake, I do remember. I don't think I knew that he was officially retired or anything. I think I just was like, oh, he's just, you know, one of those directors who disappears for seven years when they're painting in Venice or something, and then he pops back up and makes something, <laughs> which I respect. A good well, old loach. Good old loach. And it does have, um, whilst it's got little weepy moments, it's got some real, like, fist-pumping moments as well. It's actually, it's it's a good little watch, so I recommend it, man. So that's nice. Okay. That's nice. Well, thank you for the reco. Hey. That's cool. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, shall we, <laughs> shall we do it? What do you reckon? Yeah, I'm very excited, Jimmy. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. All right. Well, look, hello and welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I am Sheppy. I tried to say it a bit differently because I'm aware that I've fallen into this rhythm of saying it exactly the same way every time. So I emphasize the word. And that was spontaneous. I like that. Over the years, we'll be able to pull together a little coffee table book with different Sheppies and their inflections. So I'm happy about that. That's cool. <laughs> well, so far there are two. I think. <laughs> that was the second. So yeah, it's gonna. It's not gonna. Not. It's not really a coffee table book. More. Uh, I don't know. A napkin. <laughs> an ineffectual coaster. Perhaps. But yeah, for sure. I'm up for it, Jimmy. We'll make a mint. A mint. Jimmy, I'm very excited, but first of all, you better tell me, because I don't know, what, what are we doing here? You you mentioned something about something called shoulders of something. I really hoped you'd ask me. That makes me happy. I think that should be the way we always do it. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we are, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and especially Sheppy, uh, the What's Thank If you. podcast for movies, sequels, prequels, TV spin-offs, TV prequels, sequels, as in today, spoiler alert. Oh, hang on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get my shit together. (laughs) (laughs) Doing what now? Taking beloved IP, Sheppy, and sometimes not so beloved IP, and putting our own spin on it. uh, Our own pee on it. You're in trouble now, Shepard. You're in trouble. Oh, God. Anyway, um, right. So uh, today, Shepard, you set us a very seminal special. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So what I did was um, I, I set uh, a new Blackadder series. Big fan, as I, I know you are. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting. And to see where it went from tiny, tiny spoiler, I thought it would be interesting for my end, at least, to sort of go like what would what, be be conceivably if it hadn't stopped at four and it did come back occasionally for the specials and so on but if it had like another three years later just made another one another one essentially you know that sort of thing uh, for better or worse instead of elton making the thin blue line which was you know great but you know just continuing that um would be an interesting thought and just one of those um, i thought it would be interesting to hear and i'd like to know your take as well and Blackadder in general, a lot to talk about, Jimmy. So yes, yes, sir, absolutely. So that's why I chose it. And also I thought I'd better do it before you do, because it, this this whole thing is such a Jimmy sort of offering. Like I so I thought, oh, he's going to get to it, you know, like vacation all over again. So <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> you wait till you hear what I'm proposing for the uh, the 50s. Oh, I can't wait. I can't um, wait, sir. Very excited. Uh, 
Well, Sheps, I'm so pleased you set this one. It's again, it's a really intimidating shoulder to stand on when when we get to these ones which are particularly wobbly for to stand on for me, like because they're so like in my heart and soul and very fiber and blackadder two and four particularly for me are very special and four particularly on top of that has been the source of meeting friends man like just quoting finding people that love it as well and it just becomes a real source of huge connection and you know i think i i wonder i, I this i've never even thought about this before but it's so deep that even it almost made, has made all of the people in it um, absolutely uh, infallible to tallest poppy syndrome. I say that because Hugh Laurie, for example, had took himself off to America, became a super duper huge star with House, and yet no Britain didn't crucify him for becoming successful like that because he's still our George or whatever. Like, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like it's it's so iconic. Like it's so iconic. It's amazing. It's yeah. just, uh, yeah, it makes me so happy to think about whenever it is. So. And by some way, my favorite Atkinson, by by leagues, my favorite Atkinson, like it's the, my favorite thing he does is this. And like Mr. Bean or whatever, it's like, it's still, I appreciate how great it is and how much people love it. But really, it's, it, it, it's not to say that it, it's kind of in the League One against the Premiership. But it's just to say well, Blackadder is that good. Yeah. It might still be in the Premiership. Blackadder is like beyond Champions League sort of thing, you know. Ultimately, obviously, they're very different things. And Mr. Bean has his appeal in terms of it's a very physically based in comedy, of course. So it translates, you know. Um, so there's that. And also, who doesn't love a silly-faced goon falling over a lot? So fair play. And Atkinson's obviously a genius. I will say in terms of Mr. Bean, the first three, or maybe even six, but certainly the first three were amazing. And Curtis, again, um, and Trigger, Roger Lloyd Pack is in one. So there you go. Um, and then it did for me just get more and more silly and ridiculous. And I stopped watching. And then I, I don't think I've seen the films. And that's fine. And, you know, it's very Jack Tate-esque and all of that. And I'm all for it. But to me, Atkinson, it seems there are two, two Atkinsons basically you've got your your goofy um clown type and then you've got your sardonic biting razor sharp uh, sly fox type and i obviously prefer that and johnny english started as a barclay cards advert and he was the acerbic atkinson but when they made it into the movie johnny english they turned him into the bumbler and it's like ah so close and yet not so so anyway so that's my take on Atto and good for him and all who sail on him and yes Blackadder for me is always my favorite version of the you know of his oeuvre so yes and let's not forget never say never again oh my god amazing amazing (laughs) I love that observation on Johnny English Sheffield it's so close that's perfect that's perfect how do we do this? Should we just go through each series quickly and just give little bits that we loved or whatnot? I don't know. How yeah, to... yeah. And I'm going to be mentioning things. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, there is a slight delay, listener. So if we interrupt each other because of that, not impatient gabbling. So, yes. <laughs> um, yes, let's, let's go through, starting with number one, which I'll just say straight off the bat, 
I've only seen Blackadder, The Blackadder once, and that was ages ago. And I, but you know, I was still very, very young. It was like early 90s, but I had already, I was familiar with Blackadder Goes Forth and the second one and the third one. So it was, I was late to it. And I, I saw it from that end, but it was still pretty early on. Maybe I'm not even right about that, but I was definitely more familiar. Blackadder 2 at least existed. In any case, I didn't like it at the time, and I haven't seen it since because I also know that it's not what we would equate to what the Blackadder template is. And indeed, it wasn't at all in the characters and so forth. So I am very interested to go and re-watch that uh, at some point. But that's all I really... I remember tiny, tiny bits of it. I did watch it... Um, yeah, I remember Peter Cook getting his head chopped off and still talking. I know Baldrick is the smart one and saves them like, like from being burned, like the voodoo doll of like a witch finder. I remember that, and I haven't seen this since like '91 at the latest. But so, but I am interested uh, to go back. That's my take. What about you? Yeah, it's very similar. It's one and done, and I don't remember much. I remember Brian Blessed being in it and his dad. Oh, yeah. Right. I remember it having a very, like, maybe the darkest ending. I suppose two. Oh. Two. But, um, but yeah. It, it, well, it, don't, yeah. yeah. Don't tell me the ending of one because I don't remember. Um, so, so that's exciting. We'll talk about that later. But um, in terms of, I know there was lots of Shakespeare stuff. It's heavy Macbeth vibes. Yeah. And I'm sure the Blessed was a bit of a Hamlet going on. So, so yes, yes. Uh, I would be very interested to see it again. I know it was made on film. It was a very, it was shot like it was a drama with that sort of level of production value, um, and it didn't quite land with audiences. I don't think it was pretty expensive to make, and so again, that's why they really scaled it down and turned it into a proper sitcom. Which ordinarily I would be like, ah, but because I came into this with number two, and I'm just like, yay! And they brought on. I guess it was Elton, which is so funny because I like Curtis's writing. Um, but that first one, I, I don't know, he's trying something different. Elton I like, but I don't love. But him coming in, it's like the perfect balance. And then two and three and four. And like you, absolutely, just quick spoiler, two and four for me are, yeah, the, the chunkers. Absolutely. Anything else about number No, nothing else about one. I just, I'd love to, to your points earlier around John Sullivan and the Christmas regrets and all that I'd love to have a deeper dive on you know that evolution from series one to two is huge then you know like scaling it down making it more sitcom-y like you say but even the transformation of Blackadder's character like you know he's not really the same that he then is for the next three and and beyond into all the specials or whatever but you know just um yeah really um it's really amazing, actually. So Elton is the is is some of the, a good chunk of the juice as well, right? That's really cool. That's um, it, exactly. It's, I'm sure it's it's the alchemy. It's 100 both of them. Absolutely, it's not 50 50. They're both 100 percent because they're weaved in. I'll quickly say Ben Elton came to Godalming College when I was there um, as a student, not just hanging around. And Ben Elton came because he went there when it was like a uh, like a, a, a grammar school, I think, and he gave like a talk to the the whole school, the whole college, you know, in the big hall, and did like a little routine and just like talked about what you know his memories. But then he came to my my theatre group and did a, like a little workshop with us, and he told us that he did a nice Rowan Atkinson impression, but he also said that doing Blackadder 
he would write something and then he thought it would be good and then he'd give it to Curtis and Curtis would do a draft and give it back and he'd be like, that bastard, he took out my best line. But then Curtis would say, you bastard, you took out my best line. And then, and it, But then once it's finished, they wouldn't even be able to read it and say, that's my line, that's his line, because it's just fused together because they wrote it organically at the same time, as it were. Um, you know, and so that's you know, overlapping drafts on top of each other together. Yeah, certainly. So that's really nice. So I remember that. Love that. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So it's it's perfect stuff. Um, two and four for me, absolutely. Two. Let's get into then. First of all, straight to the end, you mentioned the very dark ending, and I, I I'm so curious about this because yes, it ends on this real before the credits. This massive. He's won. He's absolutely won, and it's this really triumphant moment. Then, as a viewer. You have about a minute, maybe a minute and a half of, end, of during the end credits where your soul is still soaring and you're just so elated. And it's not like they all had coders at the end of an epilogue and it is the only one. And you're like, hooray. And you're just getting up to go off and make a cup of tea, reflecting and basking in everyone's triumph. And then you have this ending where everyone has had their neck, their throat slit and Queenie is dead and she's been replaced by the German Hugh, Hugh Laurie. Uh, who's now taking you know, because he's the master of disguise, and that's the end. And it's like, what are your thoughts on that, Jim? I, I hear you. I think it's genius. I think it's genius. yeah. And no yeah. one can do that now, probably. Really, not like that. Not such a switcheroo. Do you think? I think. I'm even like, do you think it was almost an afterthought? Like they had written it, but then they're like, well, I know we don't don't exactly have to be historically accurate but we know through history that the queen did not marry someone called blackadder it didn't happen so we know it can't happen and they were doing like they would take maybe and they're like well let's just kill them off in an epilogue and they're, oh, they've all got the next slip or was that always the plan you know or or, the, or did they realize that oh edmund died in the first one so we should probably die in the second one i don't know but, I, um, like I like to think it's like they have a they have a strict rule that he's always going to meet a grisly end of some sort. And that, you know, it's that they and and they're just it's like almost Beatles level of genius going on in the sort of the Oxbridge alumni and the Curtis Elton it, thing. And they're just it in, is a massive kind of fuck you, but yeah, in a punk rock it. sort of way, which yeah. I do respect and I like. It does jar, but I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't alter the universe and have it not exist. Uh, no, it, it is, you know, I wouldn't dare question the creative decisions of the people who are doing it. Uh, so, yes. It's, uh, it's says, doing a podcast about sequels. Yes, go on. <laughs> That's amazing. I think I'd slightly so it, but it's amazing. <laughs> I think it's really interesting, Atkinson, because, you know, speaking as objectively as I can, I think it's, him at his certainly the black other character at almost his most appealing as well like he's quite sort of he's a bit of a sexy character into like he's quite yeah. a bit about him and he's sort of yeah really i suppose you're rooting for him even more than you are in the others because you know i i don't know three as well to be honest but four certainly you know 
he's trying to shirk his responsibility to defend his country in a way. So he's he's less related. Well, I'm not gonna we'll get to that, but I actually yeah. disagree with that in number yeah. four's case. So <laughs> I, I, I heavily disagree with that. But I immediately directed as well, to be honest. So I don't I, yeah. Let's not get there yet, right. because then we'll yeah. pay off on a on a um, too steep a tangent. But <laughs> to be continued. But in terms of two, uh, um, he's always he's very much on the back foot a lot of the time. Uh, uh, not even spoilers. This evening we watched um, the one where they drink, um, where they all get drunk from episode, from season two. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So that was that was nice. Blackadder is in this in the second one. He's a bit more acerbic even than the other two, meaning three or four. Um, it he is he's he's pretty brutal, um, and it's and that's nice. Um, I like that. I like this version. And like you say, he's a bit of a gadabout, a little leering. My favourite episode might be the one with Tom Baker um, in there with the Mad Sailor. That is pretty special because that's got a lot. But they, it's very hard. That one stands out just because that's amazing. And then he'll drink Baldrick's piss. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> so I am a big fan of that. And... Uh, I mean, everything Tom Baker does and says, and all of his lines are amazing, even without that performance. And he'd be like, you have a woman's purse, my lord, all of that. And then with the with the nursey and all of that stuff, uh, it's like, oh, yes, please. Ooh. And yeah, uh, it's, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. So I don't know, do you happen to have a favourite or just a shout-out, at least? I'll be honest, Sheps, I, I don't. <laughs> I seem to remember the one with Flashard coming in for the first time where he's going to get married and he's going to ask yeah. Percy to be his best man. Yeah. Classic. You know, why don't we ask Percy who's going to, who could be your best man? You know, and then of course he actually asked Percy yeah. who do you think should be my best man? Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah I, that's the one that always sticks in my mind, but I need a. And I think that's the first episode as well. They really hit the ground running with, with that second season because they had Bob and they had Flashy. Uh, and a male, of course, being just genius, absolutely amazing, going for it in only Rick's special way and owning it. And yeah, and again in four, but yeah, to be continued. But that, that's all great. Bob is great. I like that Bob isn't in season three, but she is, is a comeback in season four. I, I like that. And in this sort of format, it, there's two and four, which again mirror each other because you've got the the, the main power player who is an idiot and absolutely the most dangerous person in the universe. And you've got Melchit, the general, and you've got Queenie. And then next to them, you've got the, the, the toady, Lickspittle, Smithers, um, who is just hiding. So you've got Melchit as the toady in season two, and you've got Darling, who is effectively Percy in season four, and they're the main threat to, to Blackadder. They're the ones who are probably his intellectual equal. They're as shrewd in their own way, but their whole gimmick is they're standing as close to the bomb as it were as possible to protect or to snigger or to manipulate and you know to play this year you know, in terms of number two and Meltrit, him playing her as much as he can, but always being so close to her upon a whim, just chopping his head off. Whereas you know, a darling is trying to sit out the war and, and all of that. So you've got the same sort of group. Blackadder and Baldrick are always the same. Sometimes you've got the, and then you've got George in four being the idiot friend and then Percy in two. 
so there is this sort of but they're, they're all the same sort of people and i like that and that's and it's slightly different in three spoiler because the main power player idiot isn't dangerous and he's benevolent and it's george and so blackadder is in his safest position out of all of them he's still on the back first and i i'll say this about three it's the one that i'm the least familiar out of those three what i consider blackadder which is two three and four basically um three like you is the one that i'm the least familiar with so i have been watching a couple of those and I use the idea that number three is different. So my one can be a bit different as well, that sort of idea. Um, and so I've watched a few three and it is good. I really like it. But yeah, without that extra danger element, perhaps. And of course, the other two are just on next level. So I like three, but it's but I, and I like the fact that it's a bit different. It's the Temple of Doom. It works for me. <laughs> um, so I'm happy. And one point about the episode of three I saw the other day, it did one thing that I don't think I've seen in any other Blackadder ever. And it did it this one time. It broke the rules of the universe. Uh, Blackadder is holding a tray, and George, Prince, King George says something really crazy, and Blackadder drops the tray. But then George says something like, oh no, but then this happened. And so it, it, it makes it okay. And then the, the, film reverses and the tray and the context goes backwards back up into his hands again and then it resumes uh, and it's like a cartoon moment and it's like that's so random and i accepted it immediately but then i was like that is interesting and it was written into the script you know it, it, it you know to be specifically they created that moment for that to happen if you know what i mean so oh, interesting i don't remember that at all and i don't like i'm exactly the same no. I don't really remember three too much. I've seen, you know, I think I've seen it. I think it's fair to say I've seen it, but I couldn't, I, you know, gun to the head, I might have missed an app because I came to it very late. And I think um, it feels also like the one where Baldrick kind of, not that he was ever supporting, supporting character, but he sort of came to the fore and, you know, became a bit of a, 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 a mascot of the show as well. And kind of, had, he just sort of, a lot of people love it because they find Baldrick super funny and he has a lot to do in that one. And I, I feel the character gets a little bit of a G up maybe in that season then goes through to four. But That's kind of, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I, and I'm not like Baldrick is a great character and iconic in and of himself and has made me laugh a lot. But, you know, he's my least favorite actually of all the players, you know, generally. And, um, and perhaps that's why I haven't really revisited it as much. Oh, I wanted to mention before I forgot, just whilst we're talking about Blackadder 3, um, that's one season spoiler where he doesn't die and he does win and it doesn't have a sting at the end of the credits. And that's how little I bloody know it. Yeah, I have to I have to rewatch that, man. That's uh, so he kills George, Jesus. Mm, I can't bloody remember. He becomes king. Wow. <laughs> so what I love about that is they weren't afraid to play with history there. And then I love how they just played in the fourth. I love how they just played in the fourth. But we'll get there in a minute. But yeah. I guess like maybe they stuck to history. Maybe the king like turned it around and that's why. And they're actually explaining history. <laughs> maybe. 
I want to think, what is the root vegetable that Baldrick has tucked under his arm? Is it a marrow or something? Or like a... Well, he, he does have a massive turnip. thing to turn it. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think they really lent into in that. And that was kind of the, the big gag. And it just doesn't scratch me in the same way as it, it should, maybe. There was um, there was a huge Baldrick turnip storyline in Blackhead of the Second that I watched this evening in the drinking episode. So it's uh, that, there's that at least. So moving on to number four, then Blackadder goes fourth. Unless there was anything else about three, although I recommend a rewatch. You know, it is the one which isn't as good as the other two. You remember, remember correctly, but it's still great and it's worth a watch. Nice chaps. Yeah. No, nothing else about three. Let's get into it, man, because this is yeah, it's special. Well, ultimately, the edge is it has the catch twenty-two element, and that that always has appealed to me. Um, It is Blackadder catch twenty-two, and it's. Great, and that's why I think it's not like oh, he's not trying to defend his country. It's madness. He's in. It's absolute madness, and all he can do is try and survive because there's nothing. It's they're fighting over half a meter, half a foot outside of of dirt, and um, and all the generals and captains are all just absolutely insane. Uh, so it's a, it's a madhouse, and he's just second by second, like get me that fuck out of here. Uh, so I, so I like that. Yeah, it's the most desperate he's been in any of them. I love that as well, and I agree with you. I need, for the sake of our friendship and my own credibility, to just say I regretted the words as they left my lips earlier. So I, I totally agree with that too. <laughs> I totally agree with that too. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it's just it's not a weak episode. They're all six out of five stars in my view. They're all yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Like. Not signed by George, dedicated to George. <laughs> the king. King George. Well, George. yeah. Well, again, at the end of that is amazing. So yeah. many quotes, so many quotes throughout, the, uh, which we, you and I, have uttered um, to the people's uh, absolute horror and fury and outrage, I think, because through the repetition, and that's one of them. Not, not to George, for George, King George, John King, the king, where? That's a bit of a Jimmy joke. It's the Jimmy Mummy joke. Have you got a favourite <laughs> yeah, I've got one. I know. It's, it's. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's very hard. I mean, I love the trial, Spotted Jim, yeah. and that's pure Malfred. And I mean, yeah, I don't have a favourite, but yeah. that that one stands out. And also, again, Flash Heart and the the, yeah. the spitfire for the amazing always that's, treat you kind like you treat your women and george stands up and says what take them at home at the weekend to meet your mum to meet the mother <laughs> <laughs> no i mean get inside her twice a day and take her to heaven and back amazing amazing but listen corporal punishment is mine too well i know you haven't said it's yours but it is mine speckled gem is mine absolutely yeah but, but they're all brilliant yeah. all brilliant and but yeah pure milk. And the hospital one with melanda richardson oh, yeah oh, um, I about that. yeah oh the, the one black out of three that i saw the other day um had melanda richardson as a highwayman so there you go come on amazing but uh, as for four, they're all brilliant. Bob again, Flash Art again, being amazing again. Male, um, everyone being brilliant. Four has the advantage because in that role, I prefer Laurie as George rather than you know Tim uh, as as Darling. I love Darling, 
but you know what I mean? I mean, Percy, really. In two, I would rather, you know, I prefer George in that role because I love George. And Laurie, like you were saying, playing that character. And also that was, you know, there was that and there was Jeeves of Worcester. So he really had the upper class twit, dim but nice shtick, really down. So, of course, and when House and everything come, came out, and uh, it's like with Anthony Head, with Buffy and becoming big. And then in England, you're like, oh, it's, it's the gold blend guy. And it's the same thing in a different way, because it's like, oh, it's Hugh Laurie. That's nice. He's already a national treasure. But, oh, it's the gold blend guy. That's nice. Or, hey, that's Lovejoy. And when you, know, when you watch Deadwood. So, um, but, so for a lot of people, when they see George, like people who only know him as House, or even, isn't that the dad from Stuart Little, when they see him being like, oh gosh, sir, you're like, that's, that's amazing. It blows a lot of people's minds, I think. <laughs> Georgina is amazing. I understand why Melissa yes. falls in love with her. Yeah, absolutely. That drag act, Bob, amazing. Oh God, it's just too much. It's too much to even, yeah. We yeah. don't regurgitate the gags. If you're listening Ooh. to this, you must know and love it, right? I mean. Stephen Fry, um, suggested that the Percy character, well, Tim McNeary, um, suggested he was going to be called something and in number four, and Stephen Fry said, I went to a school and the guy's surname was Darling, and so of course all the schoolmasters called him Darling, and it's funny, so why not call him Darling? So that came from Stephen Fry. Um, he wasn't going to be Percy, whatever, but yeah, so that's amazing, and I love darling by the way but also i love oh, i love you darling i think he's it and then they're just leading into the joke shamelessly for that beautiful moment uh, <laughs> that's quite a of order uh, really darling sometimes you can eat you're right we shouldn't just be saying the quotes this is not good there's no need to be like that sir <laughs> yeah and then darling looks like beaker for a second uh wonderful so and also of course the ending which is just a punch in the gut. And I didn't see the first time. And then you told me about it the next day in the playground. And I didn't get to see it for a while. But that end scene on the final episode is like yeah, pretty powerful stuff. And you can see why, you know, yeah, it's like there's no other ending, of course. It's not like it's not going to be mash. He's not going to go home. Yeah. yeah. Can I also yeah. say about Darling? is suddenly humanized in that moment where he gets sent to the front line and Blackadder is intelligent enough not to gloat. He knows that, oh, fuck, I'm sorry. You know, um, you're, you're going to die with us. I'm, I, that's not what I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. And so he's, he's cool, you know, and, and, and Darling just says this one thing, like, I thought I was going to sit this one out and I'll just go home and work for Pratt and Son. And then he just says, like, something like Mary, Mary Doris or something. I think it's Doris. And it's just Mary Doris, and suddenly he's human, and he has his whole life, and and it's like fuck me, man, and it's so genius uh, because you've just not liked him. He's the foil all the way through, and then oh no, so yeah. uh, so he's that's that's to genius. Well. He's just trying to survive two his own way, and you're just giving me a shiver. Yeah. I love it, man. So true. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of things, and I should have looked at these before because that should be the way we end it to go into the pitches. But I just, <laughs> I'll just say, um, oh, look, it's so stupid. It's just an anecdote. I just happened to be uh, walking in Camden once, hungover, 
and I was just going to a cafe or something to go and get something to treat my hangover. A very busy, bustling Camden Markety type day. Looked to my left, and Tony Robinson was walking along next to me, and I was about to say, "Shit, Tony!" Like there was something, you know, like hey, cutting plan and being really annoying and obnoxious. But um, just as I'm about to talk to him, he starts saying, "Of course." During the you know medieval times, da, 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 and he's talking to a camera that's like you know he's actually walking through the street doing one of those shots, you know. To the <laughs> oh shit! And I've never watched his sort of time history show in case I'm in it, but uh, that's quite funny. Oh, you have to, you <laughs> have to watch timed you looking gormless, being like, unless I'm sorry. To- Tony, you gotta go again. You got some hungover dude smelling in your ear. You're out there somewhere, Jimmy. I bet. And he's like, oh, how embarrassing. I can see it. I can see your face next to his. <laughs> That's brilliant, man. What a claim to fame, though, being sharing screen time with Robinson. Come on. Come on. But, uh, yeah, well, listen, man, I am so excited about your pitch. And I think we should get to them if you're happy to. I do too, Jimmy. And by by to follow that up, let me say this: Were you a fan of Maid Marian and her and her merry men? I'm a fan of the title and the concept. I can't say I remember a single quip from it, but yeah. You remember it existing? Do you remember watching it? Yeah, and I I think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. The title says it all, doesn't it? It's amazing. Got the girl power angle that flip. Yeah. Um, that was good. That's just worth a shout out because Winston plays the Sheriff of Nottingham and he plays him as the Blackadder and he has goons, stooges who are idiots and he says the Blackadder type lines to them. Um, and I always thought that was nice. And I'm sure Robinson, and Robinson wrote it. And, um, and so him giving himself that, that I, I've always quite liked. So good old Robinson. Nice. Nice. Good old Robinson. That's so cool. That deserves a comeback, that show, to be honest, I think. But, um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the guy who played Robin Hood was also in the Lean Cuisine adverts in the early 90s. <laughs> there you go. Me? Oh, I just take care of myself, you know, walk, take, get some exercise, and, uh, oh, yeah, eat Lean Cuisine. Stayed with me, man. Stayed with me. Um, well, Shep, I'm just going to... Be good yes. looking what you got cooking for oh, us. There you go, dude. The there you bloody go. There you bloody go. All right. So um, what I'm just to give you a layout then. So I've, I've got a season and I've sort of talked, I've got a very, I've got a synopsis with some dialogue for each, for each episode um, and, a, and a title. By the way, the titles of every season are really good and specific. Um, and I didn't do that <laughs> for mine. Because of that. Um, and there were two main um, for me, just straight off the bat, I've gone wide, not so much deep for this, Jimmy. Uh, Blackadder originally was 83 to 89. Um, so I thought maybe like 92. Um, but also, I've sort of, in this, in this could have like a wider universe. Like we've even sort of like, there are, like I said, more um, in the 90s, for example. They sort of carried on making them for like a while. Or sort of even with like every now and again, wild car one-offs. I've been very influenced, obviously, by Only Fools and Horses recently. So I'm seeing it now sort of like that in a way where maybe they just do a one-off Christmas special, which is like an hour long, like every few years or something. Um, and they, so 
one idea for one random one, which isn't even, which isn't my thing, but like one could be like cavemen and it's like prehistoric times supposedly in a settlement and there's like a rival between clans with the tribal leader is like this dolt and there's a rival chieftain type being a main threat and Edmund, but he's called Ugmund because they're cavemen you see, being the only caveman with ambitions who no one else, you know, and uh, the only person who can use the lavatory without polluting three clans water supply. And Baldrick is considered the hunk of the clan, of the <laughs> tribe, and uh, and uh, Ugmund is sent you know, uh, to find a new location for a settlement, and he has to have a horrible adventure, and he's sent to make contact with the rival tribe over the hill, and another episode is ordered by the chieftain to disprove this newfangled fad that's spreading like wildfire, fire, uh, and all of this <laughs> is going on. <laughs> And what may be the last woolly mammoth is stalking the tribe, but it turns out to be Percy in a huge costume, busy inventing theatre. And the last episode is a real village wannabe because it ends with the Romans coming over and we learn that it's been 55 BC the whole time as the first Roman invasion kicks off and they're just absolute idiots. So that, that was my idea. And that I actually thought could be actually Blackadder 5. So it's called Blackadder 55. And then you find out in the last moment, really, of the last episode of the season that it's 55 BC, but it's not like hundreds of millions of years ago or whatever. Um, so that's number five. And then and then maybe there's like a one off where it's like the Roman years or the Viking years or the Norman years. Um, and there's like one with the Viking hordes and Edmund is counselor to a warlord chief who's Percy and an idiot in a Georgian number three sort of way. But he must constantly try to escape death by like pretending to be the greatest strategist out there since we Willy Winky found out how to stay in his PJs all day with his neighbors calling it art whips or some such. <laughs> um, and I know, and I just thought, yo, know, at one point I think, well, my main two options um, are one would be the eighties. And then I, you know, and then you and I, a little bit of an inside uh, basketball here, but I, I did say to you, because I didn't want to do the same, and I thought, really, there are two main options as I see it, and I'll be interested if you agree, and one of them is the 80s. And it, true enough, uh, yes. So I, I avoided the 80s, but I thought, you know, you know, anti-Thatcher satire, good stuff. I'm not going to say anything other than just I thought um, Stuart Flashman Bastard is um, in one episode, he's like the Flashman, but it's Alan Rickman as Alan Bastard's brother. Um, oh, so, so there you are. And one more, and this is a, another one-off, um, Blackadder of the Future, Spaceship, Captain is like a Kirk wannabe, but clueless, maybe it's Flashheart, Baldrick is the ship's uh, navigator, uh, so they're fucked. Edmund is second in command and he's constantly put in dangerous positions, being sent on away missions and establishing first contact. And the only exotic alien sex on the menu is one night with Mr. Wibbly, Percy's black market alien sex doll. And there's like black holes and dangerous asteroids. And, uh, and I'm not talking about the after effects of Baldrick's bangers and mash. Uh, avoid as many red dwarfisms as humanly possible, but I don't know. I think it's going to be basically red dwarf with the Blackadder cast, but lots of infighting and so on. Um, so, so there you go. But I didn't do any of those. But that that could be the universe. Um, and also, spoiler: I totally forgot. Like we were talking about Jimmy, that every season actually has a definitive end for better or 
worse for Edmund, and I just didn't do that. So, so see, uh, so, so so never mind. Uh, and I, I I chose the template. We're talking. I was talking earlier a little bit about the templates and you know which character fits which role in that particular universe. And the one I went for is basically a sort of a mix between three and two, just in terms of like. You know, I, I liked I like to sort of lean into that a little bit and not try and focus on one particular thing when I was writing this anyway, because I didn't want it to be the same as any of the others. Um, so this one is basically the sixth Bladder Blackadder show through the fifth one is 55 BC, essentially Blackadder 55. So this, I guess, is like 94, I'm going to say then. Uh, and it might have even been like a, one of those specials in between at this point. And this is the main one, Jimmy, uh, and it's Blackadder 60s. And 60s, you know, that's that's fits into it because it's six and all of that. But also another possible title, actually, not Blackadder's 60s, which is one possible. But I, another one I just liked because it's different is Blackadder lays it on because it's kind of 60s talk. And I don't know, he lays it on. Blackadder lays it on. I don't know. I kind of liked it. So anyway, it's Camden 1963. So the three basic protagonists is, is basically the same as two. So you've got Edmund, Baldrick and Percy. Um, and Edmund owns a secondhand bookshop, which also deals in like trinkets and random odds and ends and stuff with a sideline in anything that will make him a buck. Uh, always on the lookout to get out of this squalor because this is the poorest we've ever seen Edmund. He's always, even in four, he's like, he, he was from wealth of some sort. He was from a good family, joined the army, you know, and all of that. It was made a, you know, a ranking officer to begin with. So there's that. Here, he's he's pretty down on his luck. And again, there is in it, there's a lot of uh, DNA of a bit of Only Fools and Horses mixed in with all of this. Not on purpose, but it's there, you know. Um, so Edmund owns his second-hand shop. And also he deals with like dodgy goods, fences and stuff. You know, he sells things, sort of a black market thing to get extra money with like dodgy loot and so and so forth. Um, but his main ambition is to get back his noble heritage, essentially. Whether or not he's even aware of his noble heritage, DNA, he's just, that's his, what he's striving for. Um, so Edmund is basically Edmund and Baldrick is basically Baldrick. Um, and he's just kept on as free labour. And... He's only really, I think, the cook in number four, but I do have him as the cook here as well, so fuck it. Um, the, the gimmick over the six episodes, one of the gimmicks is that Percy keeps changing his style and fad each week. So one time he's like really going for a hippie, and then another one he's like a sort of a counterculture beatnik, and then like a, a Beatles super fan with like the hair and everything, and then like a sort of a bohemian artist, and then sort of like a Manson-type um, which makes me laugh because I just see him with wild eyes and a massive scraggly beard, even though it's before Manson. Um, George is the main antagonist and bane of Edmund's life, and so he's the Melchit, if you will, uh, from number two, or the Darling. But he's also the, the, the power source, so he's a malevolent power source, which hasn't happened before. He's a bent copper, he's smart and ruthless and vindictive, He's not quite as bright as Edmund, but he's, he's you know, so Edmund does often get the slight upper hand, but it's, it's, it's close. Um, and he's uh, Superintendent Georgie Barlow, 
and he's forever trying to bust Edmund. And they were old rivals from the 50s when Georgie was a beat cop and Eddie was a teddy boy in this gang who made George's life horrible and making him look like a fool in front of his peers and bosses. So he's got this massive chip on his shoulder. Um, and of the dynamic. George, George has at his toady. Now, I'm not sure, actually, if this is actually going to be the case or not, but I thought Bob's, uh, Bob is George's toady. And whether or not she's, like, in pretending to be a man and, and she's just wearing, like, and only Edmund can see, like, can you not see that this is a woman? Like, shut up, you fool. And no one else sees it. And just that's sort of the way I go. That's one thing, but that does go against an episode thing. But anyway, that's a thought. Which I thought was 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 could could be funny. Um, anyway, as for Bob though, she does pop up at some point when, and she has her own agenda. Uh, she has slept with Edmund on occasion. Um, she is super smart actually, and and she's not really to be trusted um, at all, really. And because you know she's she's out for number one, she's not blinded by the vindictiveness of George. And she's just, you know, she'll fuck over anyone just to get the number one spot, including, of course, Edmund. And, um, you know, she's out for number one, we hear. And Edmund says, well, so's Baldrick, but only because I told him I'd cut it off if he kept doing it inside. Um, <laughs> little soundbite. Uh, Melchit may or may not be a recurring character. He's definitely a focus of one of the episodes, but he might pop up for like a scene or two in like one of the others or something, or maybe like one scene in two other episodes. And Melchit is king of the gypsies who have a camp upriver just north. Um, and Melchit like sprouts many wise words. And I see him with his pure beard for number two. And he's not much good to anyone, frankly, but yeah, his wisdom does by strange chance often turn out to be accurate, but it might be a fluke. And uh, he has like Oberon pretensions. Uh, Edmund keeps uh, returning to him in a pinch against his better judgment, and indeed his advice usually gets Edmund deeper into trouble, and Melchit is like, oh, how like a vixen to outsmart the fox. One is orange with a tail, the other has a tail to turn you red, and the only thing that can tame either, a rudder good kick to the kippers and chicken casserole for supper. Uh, Edmund lives in a communal house full of artists, dreamers, anti-institutionalists, which is to say smoking slackers. And he allows them to squat upstairs because this makes the building uh, squatters' rights so he doesn't have to pay rent. But the downside is he has to live with them up there. And we have some regular faces, uh, but only uh, glorified extras, really. But one is a, a Jennifer Saunders cameo for one scene. And uh, the main recurring character from these, uh, this, this bunch is Missy Muffins, and she's played by Helen Atkins Wood, who was Mrs. Miggins in number three, and may have popped up elsewhere in other bits. And she's like a scratty and unappealing waster. And as Edmund says, a charming enough sort, but more riddled than Batman. Uh, this Edmund is, is, like I say, pretty poor, um, but, but he just wants to take all these, like, you know, dirty squatters and smokers and dreamers and you know, layabouts and grungy wannabes in the past. He just wants to leave them all uh, all away because they're all filthy and he wants to get away. Um, he has dreams of being respectable, modern and rich. Also, he's up for free love, but no one else seems to be with him. Uh, Edmund is a failed sellout, a failed post-war capitalist, 
a failed ex-Teddy boy who is buttoned up and unimpressed with the more relaxed culture he now finds himself in. He yearns for the wealth to allow himself the freedom to get away from these, quote, coffee-stained dossers whose closest encounter with a sponge is dodging them while being chased off the petrol station forecourts. <laughs> uh, Percy is like, oh, come now, Edmund, it's the revolution, the start of something new. No more old ways, no more stuffed shirts, no more clean shirts come to that. Well, I say there must be something about this modern climate that you don't find deplorable. Yes, well, I must confess to finding the concept of free love somewhat appealing. Unfortunately, as I've discovered, even the most washed-up, glassy-eyed shampoo dodger seems to find the idea of carnal relations with me about as appealing as waking before three and clothes that don't smell like they were evacuated from the back of an elephant. Oh, hang on, Edmund. What about that scrawny little number you used to knock around with? Ah, yes. Well, as it turned out, Moonbeam was somewhat more spaced out during our occasional damages than I gave her credit for. I knew we had problems when she woke up with a half-clear head one afternoon, took one look at me and thought she'd been pinched by a copper. And I was the arresting officer. It took me an hour to convince her she hadn't. And the only thing close to being collared was Baldrick, who she thought was a dog. Uh, so he wants to rise above the social level, level as he's a snob. Uh, naturally, whenever he tries getting in with the upper classes, his plans backfire and he ends up back where he started. Uh, each episode has Edmund a team attempt to gain respectability and wealth while usually ending up more or less where he started. Although he does have some minor victories here and there because um, that, that's in keeping. And Edmund uh, is like, you know, not happy with his lot and he says things like looked down on by the upper classes ridiculed by the lower i tell you this if they ever invent a middle class i'll be off like a shot i'm telling you fondues have a future and edmund is always trying new scams and corner cutting ways to get ahead um baldrick is obviously disgusting and basically homeless and he's just there cooking and helping out for free labor uh, percy of course is like also a hippie wannabe artist who's terrible at both. He's always trying to sell his shit to Edmund, who naturally is having none of it. Um, Edmund also hates the Beatles, which is referenced a few times. And there's a small running joke that he hates all this modern music. If I wanted to hear a pair of fighting cats being rolled down here in a dustbin, I'd tell Baldrick I wanted kebab lucky dip for supper again. So that's your general gist of that. Um, and then I'll just go through it. So episode one um, is called Descending Hordes. Uh, tourists are taking over the borough with Americans and French and Italians and Japanese descending to London. Uh, this suddenly the most hip of all places. Uh, the London Tourist Board, by the way, Jimmy, was formed in 1963, which drastically increased visitors, uh, which began at 1.6 million, and then it just kept growing after that. Wow. Edmund is having none of it. Uh, the army of misanthrope bashers finally marches north and, and are finally at our gates. Camden, cheaper than Carnaby Street, less sticky than Coronation Street, and just as likely to have your head caved in than most any other street you might care to name. And we establish Edmund and his second-hand knick-knack shop. Uh, all that was left from his inheritance, we may or may not find out, because that might be too much backstory, as we learn, but we may learn that Edmund's father gambled all his stuff and was like a drunk twonk 
and um, so he's just got the shop and that's why he's in this position um and he wants to live in regent's park but he's like the closest i'm likely to getting dwellings over there is if i loiter in the unsavory end for too long and end up being mugged bugged and stuffed in a bush not to be found till the garden is pruning next spring and baldrick's oh that sounds nice uh, which is a bit of another jimmy mummy joke uh, for, for, for you. Uh, Percy is introduced um, and he, he may or may not be explained that he's Edmund's ex-college friend who comes from wealth, which is why Edmund lets him hang around. But um, he's been shamed. Uh, he shamed the family once too often and is the black sheep. So he's poor as well, but Edmund, you know, has hopes for that. Um, for now, of course, uh, Percy is presenting himself uh, as like a sort of the earth market worker, stinking of fish and stuff. Um, and last week we learn uh, he was a dandy and next week, no doubt, a dock worker. And Edmund is like, and as luck would have it, all the, these vocations have one thing in common. And, and Percy will hopefully, oh, yes, yes. You maintain in a smell reminiscent of a skunk who slept in a bin of rotten cabbage and last year's vomit. Honestly, I've seen cleaner animals swimming in the Thames. <laughs> Baldrick is established as very cheap labour, and Edmund is, and by cheap, I mean free. And by free, I mean you couldn't give him away. And believe me, I've tried. And Baldrick, free is free, as my old mum used to say. Ah, yes, yet still no one wanted to risk her services. <laughs> they just didn't understand her. <laughs> well, she certainly was famous for her claptrap, but I'm not sure it's exactly what you think it is. Baldrick, yeah, but a great reputation, my old mum. The quickest way to happies than anyone else, they used to say. The quickest way to herpes, I believe it was, Baldrick. <laughs> and so as the episode progresses, uh, more colourful and exotic visitors, uh, tourists uh, to the area arrive, each of a larger stereotype of the last, played perhaps by nice cameos of the time. Uh, Edmund is like, I mean, it's bloody typical, isn't it? We spent two wars fighting to keep these exact people out of the country. And now you'd be less likely to find an Englishman in London than a liberal in Parliament. Uh, Edmund turns this around, though, and hatches a plan to make money from all of this. And he claims that his shop was first opened back in 1704 and is a historical landmark. And he charges people to come in and have a look. And Percy's, uh, well, that's all well and good, Edmund, but it's not exactly true, is it? I mean, yes, this shop was built several hundred years ago, but it only became a shop in 1957. Before that, and Edmund, yes, I'm well aware, Percy, before that it was a butcher's, a hovel, a squat, a home for rabid pets and their rabid owners, a dog home, a care home, a penny dreadful, and a dentist's. And all that was just last decade. And at the same time, come to that. Then again, it does have that plaque outside, so that's got to be worth good for a tourist or two. And have you actually read said plaque, Percy? Well, I skimmed it. I see. So you failed to read the less than appealing account. Not flattering, eh? It's a warning for the Black Death. Ah, plus being a knocker, knocking shop for two and a quarter centuries doesn't exactly extol the virtues of historical interest. You mean? That's right. These walls have seen more action than a boarding school filled with Tories. Not to mention more scurvy, dysentery and hastily transmitted diseases since the vet down the road started selling those animal pies Baldrick's like so much. So Edmund sets up shop um, as a location of a national and historical interest. And he's, and he's starting to get some money and it's starting to work. 
But then enter Superintendent Georgie, who shows up, throwing his weight around. Trady Bob's with Blackadder, maybe Bob is there as well. And uh, he looks for a way to shut it all down and arrest Edmund. And George is like, I'll have you, Eddie. London's a new dawn. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's not posh George either. London's a new dawn of commerce. International relations have never been stronger. Misleading gullible foreigners is a serious offence. And as we all know, that's what the tourist board is for. Uh, a few close calls, unfortunate encounters and near misses as George tries to catch Edmund uh, doing bad stuff. At the end, the loud mouth tourists don't like the so-called charm of North London, but vow to return in several decades once it's opened a few more hemp shops and novelty cafes. And Edmund sends them south to Carnaby Street, saying, it's fake, loud and embarrasses itself hourly by trying too hard. The Americans will love it. So George's foil, Edmund loses his new revenue stream, but also loses the tourists, and Baldrick is mistaken for a French rent boy. Edmund, Anglo relations are in the balance borders. Best <laughs> choose some garlic and think of Paris. And that's the end of the episode. Amazing. Um, Episode, uh, I've got episode two here, which is called Day Tripping. Uh, Edmund is called a fake bohemian by the local loudmouth pothead, played by Ben Elton, and challenges Edmund to a smoke-off. Edmund, who's having none of the drug culture anyway, and he's saying, I'm sorry, but if I want to lose the ability to think straight, feel dizzy and eventually vomit, I'd start letting Baldrick sleep indoors again. Uh, meanwhile, the shop has come into possession of a very rare first edition print of a pretentious satire of London life written by an insane duke who apparently invented fox hunting because he thought breaches were funny. Everyone wants to get their hands on this book from um, from T.S. Georgie, of course, but also um, the, the local Cray gangster wannabes uh, who are triplets, uh, Reggie, Ronnie and Robbie. Uh, and also a pretentious art collector. Um, one scene with George and then the gangster triplets, and they all turn up at the same time, and George is on shaky ground with them, so we see that dynamic, but there's also like a kind of a truce, and they sort of have an understanding. And after some moments of very quick thinking and farcical hiding the book behind backs, etc., Edmund manages to avoid it falling into the hands of George or the gangster triplets, or, and all the while, he's trying to impress an eccentric local collector, who's played by Robbie Coltrane, with it all looking like Edmund, and he seems to be heading for a sale. Meanwhile, the waiting, uh, the, while waiting for Coltrane's man to come in to assess the book's authenticity, Edmund is goaded by Ben Elton, and the gang take a new type of mushroom that send them on a vision quest and, uh, on a, and a massive all-night bender with immeasurable tomfooleries. Then, disaster, George returns triumphantly, turns up right at the, when they're at their massive highest, and he's all set to arrest them and take them into custody. And George is like, look at you, what a state. I haven't seen you this off your head since Carla Sturges' 17th birthday. And Edmund, who's like lying upside down somewhere, is like, ah, yes, wasn't that the time we all shaved your head and drew an amusingly shaped vegetable coming out of your mouth? And George's like, no, that was another time. And we find they were like friends way back when. And then Percy, who like falls out of the cupboard or something, says, oh, yes, that was the time they dunked your feet in cement and set your legs on fire. 
and George. No, that was another time as well. <laughs> and Edmund, so many happy memories. <clears throat> and George, for you maybe, for me, it taught me never to get drunk high or in any other way incasivated with you. And Edmund, right, little Carla's birthday, when we found an extra strong adhesive tape left over from the war. Yes, that's right. Wrapped that pretty tight around you, didn't we? You could say that, yes. You did pull it off rather fast, though, didn't you? And no, no, Percy says, you did pull it off rather fast, though, didn't you? So he was there as well. And Edmund, fast. They were still finding bits of nipple the following Christmas. And George says he's going to take the book and arrest them all immediately, and also for all the drugs and so on. Edmund's at a loss because he's fucked. Then George is duped into eating a special flapjack by Baldrick inadvertently. And George, hmm, not bad. Mouth a bit tingly, and I don't remember having that 12th finger, but still very nice. And then he loses it, and we briefly see everyone off their fucking gourd. And this is interesting, because I just this evening saw the drunk episode, and this would absolutely be the hallucinating episode. And George is the most human we've ever <clears> seen him, and we get a sense of his miserable teenage years as the butt of all jokes for Edmund and his friends. Um, and also when he's tripping balls, George isn't really a bad sort. And Edmund says, it's just a shame that when he's not tripping balls, he's usually stomping on them. Uh, Edmund wakes up the next day surrounded by the carnage from the night before, bodies strewn everywhere in all manner of positions. Coltrane and his assessor turn up to look at this book, and Edmund produces it with a flourish, only to discover all the pages have gone. And then he remembers that the night before, everyone smoked the book. The collector is, sees that the remains of all of this and the squalor, he says some very hurtful and snobbish remarks and leaves. The gangster triplets immediately turn up looking for the book and Edmund makes them think that the collector took it and they set off after him with intent to maim, so Coltrane's fucked. And then Baldrick, I'm sorry you lost the book, the money and the respect of the drug dealer you hate so much. And Edmund, yes, Baldrick, you're not wrong but I will own to there being one small upside. Oh, what's that, sir? And Edmund motions to a comatose George lying on the floor, and he says to Baldrick, fetch me the bleached garden trimmers and a bottle of dye, and I'll show you any of the end credits. <laughs> um, episode three is collared. Um, a new arrival comes to Blackadder's bookshop, Bobby, uh, and it might be the cop, but if he hasn't been established so far, it's just a young man called Bobby, a young man who seems friendly and bonds with Edmund, but is very soon revealed to be an undercover female police officer, DCI Roberta Robinson. Um, and she's been sent undercover to, to you know, get Edmund. Um, and Edmund is like, um, she's she not only has her eye on collaring Edmund, but also taking George's job. And she's smart and she's very attractive, to which Edmund says three things right there that George is not. And after she's unmasked and so on, um, she lets her villain flag fly. Um, and Edmund is massively on her toes. And they have sex a lot. And at the end, it looks like she's got the drop on Edmund, but he's outfoxed her by the skin of his teeth, partly by luck and partly by Baldrick, like inadvertently interfering. Bob and George are made to look like right fools in front of their boss, played by Richard Griffiths. And uh, Edmund uh, is like, goes to show you can't trust anyone these days. And uh, Percy, what a drag. And Edmund, yeah, she wasn't half bad. 
And so that's the end of that. Uh, episode four is called Floating okay. Gypsies. Just before we get to the Floating Gypsies, like, I've realised two things. And this is both in terms of your impressions here. One, I think you actually, your default is not too far off Blackadder. That's why it's so good and uncanny and wonderful. Like, I think you have got a very sort of wonderfully snarky sort of thing sometimes around the Blackadder thing. It's nice. It's happy. And your Percy, man. Holy shit. <laughs> so good. I didn't know you had it. It was really happy. Brilliant. Sorry, back, back to the gypsy. <laughs> this sounds like it had to melt. I wasn't even. I wasn't even aware um, that it was that that the Atkinson was plausible. So that's really good to know. Genuinely, that's <laughs> nice. Thank you. Um, so, episode four, floating gypsies. After losing a tremendous amount of cash, his last on the horses, Edmund is in trouble with local bookie, moneylender, and knee breaker extraordinaire Dougie the Nail played by Adrian Edmondson. Now the gang must go into hiding, joining a clan of gypsies living in their caravans and shanty town, as well as a barge as they go up the river. Uh, the gang uh, are living on this barge at this encampment up river near Blackwell Point. Uh, there they meet Melchit, the king gypsy, who is wise in a way, uh, but also has his, uh, you know, he might have his own agenda, maybe. Um, he's King Gypsy after all. They, you know, they're wild. While there, Percy finds love with the barge horse Gavin. Uh, Baldrick finally masters his ratatouille. The secret ingredient turned out to be a river um, river water so polluted it mutated the rats into radioactive beavers. Um, Edmund gets his ears pierced to fit in and discovers it's not only city dwellers who smell. Edmund says. I mean to say, take away the soot, the grime, the fog, and the factory sludge, and what do you have? River waste, unwashed peasants, and a bloated cow carcass washed down from up Liverpool around the turn of the century. They drink moonshine, meet all sorts of colourful types, as well as being threatened with a gypsy curse for Mad Irene, the Scouser Flounderer, played by Dawn French. To stay, they must all prove their inherent gypsiness to Melchit with varying, varying results. Ultimately, they upset the gypsies, anger King Melchit, burn down three caravans, and make Gavin pregnant. With the whole tribe at arms, they must flee back to London. Once home, they discover the newspaper that Percy has had the whole time, declaring that Dougie the Nail is as dead as a doormat's. Uh, one of the first scenes is, in fact, Percy reading this paper and saying, whoa, would you look at that? But uh, is being ignored. And now we see at the end that the article is about the gangster's death. So they realise that the whole gypsy thing was pointless and they didn't need to do it. So Percy says, so we didn't have to worry after all. And Edmund, well, one of us still has to worry, Percy. One of us has to worry quite a bit. And Edmund advances on Percy menacingly. And Baldrick is like, I'll say so, yes, sir. And uh, Edmund, what do you mean? Well, you know, you said those stupid inbred backwards river gypsies would never have the brains which were invention to find out where you lived. Yes, the king's just rolled up to the door. And Edmund, right, thank you, Baldrick. You may feel free to take over. I myself am stepping out. Apparently those travelling tinkers from Somerset are setting up shop south of Brixton. I may be some time. And he legs it, and that's the end of the episode. Episode five, these do get shorter. Uh, episode five, hippie, hippie, hooray. As he is 
visited by a famous and wealthy art collector, played by John Pertwee, um, a dandy and a fop who is looking to see in Camden, and his eye is falling on Edmund's shop. Seeing a way out finally from his squalor, Edmund sets up, you know, buttering him up while presenting the area in general and the shop in particular as a rich in, in culture and art. The collector is a snob and a bully and a braggart, and what's more, he hates all things counterculture, hippies, bohemians and nonconformists. Edmund has his work cut out, keeping him away from the seedier, sillier and scattier elements, especially tricky as the area is nothing but all of these things, not to mention the squatters upstairs. Meanwhile, Baldrick claims he's perfected yet another culinary masterpiece using cats in his pies instead of rats. As he says, don't believe the naysayers, you really can taste the difference. Once word reaches him that the collector is coming, Edmund bullies Percy into inviting his sister for a long-threatened visit. Percy is the disgraced black sheep of his aristocratic family, while his sister is uh, now the Lady Dongslinger the uh, Marchioness of Cheltenham, and this is Miranda Richardson. Uh, uh, figuring a well-placed arrival would show this uh, important collector how classy the area and himself is, Edmund's ready uh, to two birds, one stone it, because if he can get this guy to buy the shop, of course, he's, he's made and he's out. Uh, but disaster. Upon arrival, Edmund learns that Percy's sister is as daft as he is and has embraced all things hippie. We later learn, spoiler, that this in itself is a ruse to force her father into buying her a third house in Brighton. Now, though, Edmund must keep both Pertwee and the sisters sweet while keeping them out of each other's way. And as if all that wasn't tricky enough, George is on the prowl, knowing that Edmund is in the middle of fencing stolen loot. Apparently there are five cast iron stoves and one melon mallet on the table. Baldrick is in charge of loading their nondescript car, helping Percy move the merchandise, and Edmund fears the worst. Can Edmund juggle all the elements, keeping players separate and emerge victorious? Almost, but not quite. And at the end, uh, the so-called hippie sister, Lady Dongslinger, insists that Edmund, you know, to impress her, and he's trying to get in with her, insists you know, that he get all dressed up in a similar hippie apparel, uh, and so he does so and is immediately walked in on by Pertwee, who is outraged at their attire, and he says some choice insults at Blackadder and the sister, and then he leaves, taking the car that Baldrick has been packing for him, but Baldrick gives him the wrong car, containing all the stolen loot, and then George then bursts in to Edmund, finding nothing but his car is actually Pertwee's, but no one knows that, so inside are like a dozen books on property investment and 18 capes. Lady Dongslinger points George in the direction of Pertwee and his motor, saying that he'll have better luck there. And the lady, disreputable sort, not half as well off as he claims. You can always tell a phony Richie, just uh, as I'm a phony poory, so I know of which I speak. Ah! Um, so George heads off to nab Pertwee and Edmund is left with nothing. Baldrick says, oh, I don't know, sir, you've got this. And he holds up a massive, swollen, dead cat. And Edmund, sighing, says, thank God we kept a stove. And that's the end of that episode. And then the final episode, episode six, love in the time of Baldrick. <laughs> Baldrick falls in love. He strikes yeah. up a relationship of, of sorts with a flower-selling trog played by Emma Chambers, 
And this is Alice from uh, Vicar of Dibley, and she's in Notting Hill as well. Yeah. Um, dressed and yeah. acting, by the way, a lot like the garbage lady from Labyrinth is how I see her. Um, Edmund Witness at Kissing Goodbye at one point, and he's wincing and he's all revolted. And Edmund says, good grief, boarders. I've seen you put your mouth in, on and around some pretty rum environments, but I can't imagine much more dank than that. Oh, I don't know, sir. Her mouth is actually quite lovely once you clear away the whiskers and scraps. Uh, at the same time, a famous beachnik, Angus Deaton, a sort of a Howard Marks meets Ginsburg type, arrives on the scene. And everyone is really excited, except Edmund Natch. And uh, he's it's like Walter Riley in the, in the second. And uh, Percy is like, um, <laughs> uh, Percy's, but come now, Edmund. He, surely even you can't be so square as to not find his poetry robust yet feminine, his prose biting yet intrigating, his structural flow. It's your structural flow I'm concerned about, Percy. Oh, you may spew your toxic bile, but the man's an artist, Edmund. It's as simple as that. No, you're as simple as that. Oh, come on, sir. I like his stuff. It's good. Edmund. Yes, you'll have to forgive me, but when I see a flea-covered, stain-ridden, nonsensical, gibbering redneck shamble into the room, my first thought isn't, oh good, a new voice for our time, but rather, who let Baldrick's mother out of her cage? Uh, the poet, Deaton, uh, showing up, uh, he's, he's showing up Edmund, he's mocking Edmund's uh, shop stock, calling out Edmund for being a stiff-backed conformist, who wouldn't know a countercultural revolution if it, quote, snuck up behind, pulled down his trousers and smacked him around the bottom with a copy of Gandalf's Garden, which, by the way, was a counterculture man of the 60s. Uh, he is a serious threat to Edmund, looking to usurp and then take his position in the community. And Baldrick, but sir, you hate the community. That I do, Baldrick. Doesn't mean I want to hand it over to the author of Whoops, Where's My Manifesto? Edmund solves his, uh, both of these problems, setting up uh, a chance meeting for the beatnik and Baldrick's girlfriend, hoping actually that the rancid creature would scare Deaton off. But better yet, they start to make eyes at each other and Baldrick is stricken, but Edmund is all for it. And Edmund, with any luck, they'll hit it off, have it off and bugger off before the end of the working day. And they do. And Baldrick is gutted that Edmund's position is secure. And Edmund, never mind, Borders. I'm sure a man with your looks and personality will find a suitable partner in time. That bloated corpse you've had your eye on still moored off the lock. I know. It's just I was really looking forward to seeing what an enormous diary looked like. Diary, Baldrick, whatever do you mean? Yeah, she said once she was married, her dad would give her an enormous diary. And that's dowry, Baldrick. And I'd say the chances of that cave-dwelling flea magnet having anything remotely close to a large sum of cash would be quite minimal. And then Baldrick brandishes a newspaper. Yeah, but it says here that Earl has quite has a, quite a bit put away. Earl? Yeah, Earl Olaf Shrewsbury. And Edmund snatches the paper and reads, That's the Earl of Shrewsbury, Baldrick. And the chances of an Earl having a daughter he'd be willing to let you have a go at is his daughter would have to be, and Baldrick points to like a photo in the paper, is like, her. Huh. And the final revelation from Baldrick that this girl actually did come from vast money, 
that she's the youngest daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury, and he was hoping to marry her off to anyone and leave her um, and her husband a considerable dowry to encourage her to get out and stop stinking up the house. Edmund instantly sees that Baldrick's fortune could have been stolen away with the minimal of bother and been his fortune, and Edmund is like, typical, I finally have a meal ticket fall into my lap and what do I do? I tear it up, throw it out, and now I'm left with North London's answer to the bubonic plague's poorer, more contagious cousin. Oh, now that's not fair, sir. I'm not that bad. Indeed not, Baldrick. You're not that bad at all. In the same way, finding a weevil in your codpiece isn't that bad. And Percy, blast and bother. So she's gone, he's gone, and I still haven't finished this book of prose. And Edmund taking the book of D.E.O. Deaton's poetry from Percy, saying, not to worry, Percy. Between you, me, and that five-day-old shepherd's pie Baldrick's fished out of the gutter, I have a feeling we'll be get getting through it in no time. And he rips out a page and takes it to the loo, and it's the end. Um, and tagline, I guess, for the DVD box, two taglines. Uh, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. If you remember Baldrick's cooking, you didn't eat it. Um, and the other one, one man, one decade, one shop, talk about counterculture, which isn't very good, but that's for a different market. Brilliant. Let's say. Brilliant market, the counterculture. Um, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there the you go. Today, man. Just fuck the internet today, because you'll hear, like, when you, you know, hear that back, like, my little giggles are happening about 10 seconds after each amazing line there. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, that was just brilliant. Brilliant. You got Thanks, all man. the Baldrick Blacker stuff really perfect. I really like that. And the Percy, I'm worried about your structural, what well, I didn't write it down, because the, 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 the pad where I write things down is long, in one of the other spots I tried to find the internet today but, but but yeah so um that that was a really cracking line and bit of interplay i think there's even a little bit of an overlap of me saying wow like you just got the voices perfectly in that moment too but yeah sheps fair play man oh, thanks man it's nice to see black out no, in the real world i know we didn't really live through this <laughs> but it's as close to you know and um yeah it's touching and uh, I can feel the Fools and Horses influence too, a little bit there too, a little bit of yeah. working and dealing. And Georgie is very much like Slater as well um, in in Horses. I, I'm well aware of it, but you know, you can't fight City Hall. I love the Georgie element of uh, just that different inflection of George, and like you know, that's a great yeah. idea. And I, 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 one of the more profound things of Blackadder is that idea of generationally, like souls crossing over again you know and of course it's, it's not trying to say anything particularly deep about that but it's just that for me is just a really happy part of it all like do you know what i mean and i just really like yeah. that as, as a general conceit yeah i'm gonna say for continuity purposes by the way these are like grand nephew great grand nephews of the goes forth people which is why they don't come from the same family the same stock because they are all meant to be related you know, so that's why George and even, you know, when he was younger and everything, they're poor and they come from a different area. And it's like the black strain of the family is how I'm explaining it. It's like nephews and shit. Nice, man. 
Oh, it's so cool. I love that. I really love that. And um, yeah, looking forward to a deeper re-listen on the edit. Thank you. Oh, oh, nice, man. Girl, tally ho, yibbity dap and zing-zang spillet. Looking forward to bullying off for the final chucker? So, Sheppy, this is Blackadder Pleads the Fifth. Um, and the it's 2023. It's coming now. Why not? Let's get nice. the thing back together. And as much as we can, Rick Mail RIP. Although he didn't appear in yours either, but that's nice. You've got AD in. I've got AD in too, spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, the, um, I, I didn't I didn't want to shoehorn in Flashy. Like, I didn't want him to become a Dwayne Dibley and just have him. You know, that wasn't a natural thing for him. So I, I left. I like what you said about Bob that way as well. How she just sort of they, they left her out one and brought her back and that as well. So it's nice. Yeah, I agree. It's good, good, good edits choice. <laughs> uh, and the reason for the fifth Sheppy, interestingly, I've gone with a big reveal, a bit like your sixty. No, sorry, the um fifth, the five one would have been, you know, as well, because there's a bit of a reveal in the last step as to why it's pleased the fifth, because obviously it's a bit of an an Americanism. Um, but I, I just like the idea of goes forth being the pun, and I thought please the fifth could work quite well here too. Um, I've, I've put the dynamics are pretty similar to two and four. Um, so we have uh, Rowan Atkinson, obviously, as the deputy prime minister, and then we have basically oh nice. <laughs> we have Hugh Laurie. This is I should have said as well. This is eighties. I've gone eighties, and you've very, you've very gamefully Sheppy given me the chance to have a crack at the 80s and um i i'd love to see what you would do with it that might have to be a pod special in the future but but effectively it is 80s. i think i was always going to choose the 60s for the record nice. so you're better if you had said you were doing the 60s because i thought 60s or 80s were the two kind of obvious things so i only would have done the 80s i think if, well, almost... if you had done the 60s Straight after that last song, I was thinking the first thing that occurred to me was, right, well, Miranda Richardson is Thatcher. And as soon as I had that, and I had oh, the Queen equivalent, not the Queen, the Queen equivalent from two, um, then um, it was there. And and that, that then everything else sort of fell into place from that, really. And so the idea being we've got um, Rowan Atkinson as the deputy PM. So we've got a bit of Blackadder 2 vibes in terms of, um, you know, they're obviously yeah, the main office. It. And she has Stephen Fry as her foreign secretary. She has Chancellor yeah. Darling. Um, uh, and then in Blackadder's office, he has the assistant to the deputy PM, which is the same character as George in the fourth, really, Hugh Laurie. Um, I've, put, <laughs> in fact, I've actually put a bit uh, more canny than this, Shippy. I'll tell you again, actually, in a minute. And I've got um, Tony Robinson as well, as like, you know, the lackey as well. Yeah, I guess not Cook, but, you know, admin assistant but useless effectively in the deputy pm office so yeah dynamics of the fourth but the way i've written the cast i've actually been a bit cleverer i wrote this at the weekend and i spent a few hours on it man i, I will say i don't say this often i'm proud of some of this i think some of this actually lands but but also some of it is, is, is rubbish and needs reworking and i definitely want to look at the bit bigger at the, the last episode but um but so so forgive me in advance for any stumbles, any giggles at gags I've forgotten I've made, etc. <laughs> but this is a, a, a textbook uh, case, Sheppy. Like I'd even put for my cast, I put Rowan Atkinson, Deputy Prime Minister Blackadder, comma, scheming, Tony Robinson, Baldrick, still not cunning enough, Stephen Fry, Foreign Secretary, fawning, <laughs> Hugh Laurie, assistant to the Deputy PM, bouncing. 
Tim McInery, <laughs> Chancellor Darling, Smarmy, Miranda Richardson, Thatcher, Mad, and then newscast member Peter Sarafanowitz, head of Scotland Yard, <sighs> calling him Massing Bird, like a distant cousin, distant relation of another legal person. But he's basically going to pursue the George part in yours. He's sort of on Blackadder's case, basically, and, and aware of his nice. little deal. Um, we've got, I'll give you the six titles of the episodes. I'm going to do done a similar thing to you two, Sheps. So the slide, just as teaser, the titles are Slide, Bomb, Strike, Incontinent, Bottle, and Nukes, spelled N-O-O-K-S. The, nice. um, the overriding vibe is for Blackadder to be getting uh, more power and influence as per two. And um, then the categories, uh, I, <laughs> this is something I've done, Sheppy, as well. So I've done a little bit of a synopsis. The first two eps are quite a little bit chunky, and then the rest are very quick. Um, and um, but I, I just sort of slightly run out of steam, honestly. But but then within each episode, I've given you some categories as well. So I've got you the best pop out and make a couple line. So effectively, when Blackadder goes off on one, I'm going to give you some cameos in the app. I'm going to give you the Atkinson word of the episode because he's always got great enunciation, isn't he? And uh, just the word I particularly enjoy, for whatever reason, that will come a bit clearer as we go through. I've got Baldrick's moment, so whatever his cunning plan might be or equivalent. And I've got the last scene in um, in four out of the six. I think there are a couple I didn't quite finish properly. But um, anyway, you were really good with your last scene. Amazing. Episode one, Slide. This takes place immediately post the landslide re-election for Thatcher in 1983. Blackadder sort of throw away on this is, of course, having a majority in Parliament is like being the hyena with the most spots in a clan that's been squabbling over the same patch of grass for the last 200 years. Despite the huge election win, Mrs. Thatcher's own constituency of Finchley has a lot of people that need convincing, and uh, her residence in the area has been vandalised. The agitators are identified as an influential group of punks that call themselves the Creased Shirts, or Shirts for short. This is sort of a bit of a reference against the Iron Lady, the Creased Shirts, I guess, the very anti-Thatcher movement. A plan is hatched to bring them down from within, and George and Baldrick are sent undercover as punks to infiltrate the gang and bring them to reason, if not justice. Baldrick with spiky dyed hair, George with his head shaved proper peacock, if only to see Hugh Laurie's face contorting in the mirror as it shaved off. In fact, to go deep dive on a scene, I see the briefing of Blackadder by Thatcher with um, Chancellor Darling and Melchett in the room as well, and um, going something like, you know, Blackadder saying, but mum, where will we find a barber discreet enough? And that Thatcher saying, Melchett, you used to be a barber, didn't you? And uh, <laughs> giggling, and oh, you flatter me, ma'am. I bedabbled. I can see Fry going a little Jeeves as he flips a barber towel over George's shoulders and perhaps applies the <laughs> shave either side of his new Mohican. Um, of course, uh, of course, George and Baldrick go in too deep and end up taking part in some th petty theft with the shirts. Uh, they st start to forget their old identity. During a key scene, the raid on an electrical goods store, the lead of the punks bottles the stealing of a TV. By the way, I'll, I'll jump to Cameo now. That lead is played by Robert Webb, 
he's the lead, the guy from Peep Show, um, oh. leader of the punks. Um, and um, he bottles stealing a TV. But because George and uh, Baldrick go through with stealing a telly, um, George is elected the new leader of the gang and becomes leader. It's a bit like the dynamic of George and Georgina. He really gets into it. Um, <laughs> and uh, and of course, then gets to the attention of Scotland Yard and the identification of George's punk looking uncannily like um, George from the Deputy PM office alerts Scotland Yard and, um, and Massingbird Sarafanowitz, who's a recurring cameo and on to Blackadder, although he doesn't actually pop up in any other episodes, but just imagine his wonderful sneering interplay with, with uh, Atkinson. Um, and ha he has an interrogatory meeting in Blackadder's office without being able to prove anything. Haven't written the dialogue here, but the pair circling one another almost writes itself. Despite not getting caught, the interrogation is enough for Blackadder to call back his boys, leading to um, George uh, making an impassioned speech to the shirts about how he's decided to go home, get a real job, lots of nodding, and the crew is disbanded in a very rare victory for Blackadder and George um, at the end in terms of disbanding the shirts. The best pop out and make a couple line of this uh, particular episode, Sheppy from Blackadder, is the thing is, Baldrick, there were a number of views that felt the Iron Lady should stick to ironing which is about as progressive as a crab with no legs crawling sideways on its pincers with several bags of shopping whilst attempting to complete a Rubik's Cube. Cameos from Robert Webb, uh, the leader of the shirts. The Atkinson word of the show is porcupine, with lots of capital P's in it, used after George is admiring his new do in the mirror, saying, I say, Blackadder, I actually think it looks rather fetching. And Blackadder just totally under his breath, you know, didn't give a shit. You look like a porcupine as he's reading a book or something. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> see it. <laughs> see it all. Baldrick's moment is uh, occurs during the robbery of that electrical store, and he leans into George and says, I have a cunning plan. And George says, Baldrick, there has never actually been a better time for one of these. I'm all ears. And Baldrick looks over both his shoulders. He's wearing a denim jacket over a Frankie Says Relax t-shirt. And Baldrick says, underneath my t-shirt, I'm wearing a jumper. You get the TV and I can smuggle an aerial under here. Um, and um, and his eyebrows dance as he says it. And George just says, is the jumper really necessary? <laughs> and then Robert Wood just says, the filth are in, let's leave it. And so everyone runs out. And then, of course, George says, there's no time, Baldrick, and the pair scarper only with a huge box of an 80s TV rather than the aerial as well. And then the last scene of the show is, of this particular app is the three of them, um, which is to say George um, Blackers and Baldur's uh, in Blackadder's deputy PM office watching the stolen television static with Baldur Blackadder saying, next time you steal the television, try not to forget the aerial. And Baldrick says, funny you should say that, sir. I suggested to George that I shove one down my jumper. Blackham says, I'm not sure that's where I would have shoved it. Anyway, that's the end of that ep. <laughs> your Baldrick is excellent, and your Stephen Fry is a million times better than mine, <laughs> uh, for the record. Oh, now. And also just a description of that and the, the, the Jeeves um, like esque with the whole haircut. You could, I, yeah, it's so clear. Uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Now that I say it, I feel like maybe that scene lends itself to the Jesus happening, 
then George says his little, he sort of admires it. He goes, I'd say Blackers maybe well, and Blackhead is watching mm. the thing, but not watching, reading a magazine right. behind them while it's happening. Right. Yeah. And then after Blackhead is like, then the <laughs> maybe we get a Kevin from Home Alone, like, ah! <laughs> and then all the pigeons off Trafalgar Square. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just a recent edit, as in one second. God, yes. Um, episode two is called <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> um, episode two is called Bomb Ships. This is the backdrop to this episode is the assassination. This is a bit of my Wikipedia and um, the assassination attempt by the provisional IRA in the 1984 Brighton Hotel bombing. So mm-hmm. we don't cover the Brighton Hotel bombing really, and people did die in that. And you know, Maggie survived it, you know, but es- essentially, you know. And I've just put, assume the episode and the gags are the right side of sensitivity. Um, It is an amazing story, by the way, to read on Wikipedia. It reads like a Bob Hoskins gangster movie. It was a delayed bomb planted in a room like by a guest weeks earlier. It's like mad anyway. But um, for this episode, uh, the the expository briefing gives us two arcs for this episode. So this idea, I always sort of see it as being, um, you know, a bit like a Bond movie. And a bit like Blackadder Goes Forth is, in a way, like attending the main office, where Thatcher and Starling as they are. So I knew a Blackadder who doesn't fancy attending this conference, the Tory conference in Brighton, um, manages to convince the PM that he is the man to man the office with his team while the Tory party are away at the conference and they'll be on the phones and make sure that the place runs smoothly. It's also raised in this meeting by Chancellor Darling that costs from Blackadder's department seem to be spiralling and need to be brought in line. Of course Darling enjoys delivering that news and the two have their usual antagonistic exchange. One point of contention, Darling saying, who stainless steel envelope open as Blackadder? And Blackadder just says, better to be safe than sorry, darling. And darling just twitches at that. And uh, <laughs> when Blackadder gets back to the office, he rebriefs Baldur's and George on the plan um, for them to cover the offices and also um, around the, the budget uh, flag from Darling and notices that the door handle is loose on the office. Baldrick says, I'll call a locksmith, sir. And George says, no need for that, Baldur's. It's just a doorknob. Blackadder has just said we need to save money, and that's exactly what we'll do. I'll go and get some tools. George, in pure misguided, thinks he's a man of the people moment. Blackadder gives it a, right, so that's settled. George, you handle the door. Baldrick, you man the phones, and I'll have a date with the Times crossword puzzle. I love it when he's almost licking his lips as Blackadder, and he's just happy yeah. for the next five minutes. Um, Rubbing his hands together. Yeah. <laughs> and, um... And then whilst manning the phones, Baldrick receives a call from the provisional IRA tipping off about a bomb in a bathroom and saying they are cutting the phone lines to Parliament. Baldrick puts two and two together and comes up with five and runs off to warn Blackadder, who is sitting on seat stewing over a crossword answer. Baldrick knocks on the door and says, permission to enter, sir. Blackadder says, unless you know the capital of the Republic of Djibouti, not granted, Baldrick. It's really important, sir. A matter of life and death. Good grief. And Blackadder slides the lock across. Baldrick explains about the bomb. And Blackadder says, did they say where? And uh, Baldrick says, we can't be sure, sir. Could be anywhere. And he indicates the toilet. I wouldn't stand up, sir. Well, the police are only over the road. You and George can go and alert them. And George enters the bathroom as well. It's like a really awkward moment. Like, <laughs> holding the door handle and goes, a slight problem with that plan, sir. 
Anyway, this triggers basically an in-situ three-hander with Blackadder, Borders, and George. Um, that I was a great bet to lethal weapon too, I put basically. <laughs> the best, uh, the pop out and make a couple line here from Blackadder is, I always wondered how I'd go. Most of my family were murdered in cold blood. I never I thought I'd be on the bloody toilet. It's about as dignified as a pantomime ugly stepsister bending over to squeeze into Cinderella's slipper only for her dress to ride up, reveal a pair of Union Jack knickers and have the accident and have the knickers accidentally split under the duress of her effort and give the children in the front row for their Christmas theater treat an eyeful of a pigs and blanket with stuffing balls. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the, the cameo here is uh, just the voice of Chris O'Dowd calling Baldrick as the provisional IRA. Nice. And the Atkinson word of the show at a moment of peak boredom with George and Baldrick on the toilet um, asking them one of the uh, the crossword hints: nine letters, first letter V, fourth letter I, a way to wobble. And the base of the word is vacillate, but I just like him saying B words. Basically, I could say wobble. Um, Baldrick's moment: I have a cunning plan, sir. Well, I can't exactly make an excuse to leave the room, Baldrick. So let's hear it. What if you were to slowly scooch over? as I scooched on so that your right cheek would leave the seat as my right cheek entered the seat until I sat on the seat. Very risky, Baldrick. How would that even defuse the bomb? Oh, it wouldn't, sir. I just need to go. <laughs> Baldrick. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of just says, Baldrick, tempted as I am to have you be the one at risk of being blown to smithereens, I'd rather face the risk than be stuck in a cabinet office after one of your famous Westminster water closet desecrations. The last scene, <laughs> Darling, Melcher and Thatcher returning from Brighton to Westminster. They're unscathed, but a little traumatised, and they're actually being almost serious in the scene. It's the moment of sort of, I guess, respect for what might have happened, you know, what really happened. And they're certainly sombre, the three of them. And Thatcher says, darling, will you go and check on Blackie? And darling does. And of course, the handle on the outside of the office works, so it's still intact, and he's able to um, to go in and visit the three boys, so he's a fourth in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And in hearing the predicament of the three boys, darling doesn't let on that there's been a bomb in Brighton, and instead tells Blackadder to hang right on in there, and he'll alert the authorities. Better to be safe than sorry, Blackadder. You know, and basically, darling leaves. <laughs> so that's the end of the episode. Um, and then uh, the that's third... amazing. <laughs> Bless you, Sheps. Well, that's the that, those are the two detailed ones. These are a lot more quicker now. Uh, the third ep is called Strike. Um, Blackadder and the team are sent to Rotherham to negotiate with Arthur Scargill of the um, National Union of Mine Workers against the National Coal Board. Um, so, and the, um, this is a major thing, you know, in the 80s, lasted ages, years. Um, so it's quite tricky to kind of give it a definitive moment. The bottom line is they're sent to Rotherham to go and negotiate on behalf of Thatcher. Of course, George and Baldrick get swept up in the cause and end up, you know, being on the right side of the picket line, a bit like their punk episode. Um, <laughs> and that's basically kind of all they're giving you in synopsis. But then the best pop out make nice. here. It's just Blackadder negotiating with Adrian Edmondson as Arthur Scargill says nice. a cameo. Um, and he says to Edmondson, 
Calling a strike for the coal industry against the wishes of your member during the summer rather than the winter creates about as much impact as the elves in Father Christmas's workshop deciding to put down their baubles and stop making wooden tricycles on Boxing Day. Baldrick then stands proudly next to Blackadder and Edmondson as Scargill sneers. You agree with him? And Baldrick nods and Edmondson just headbutts him. <laughs> Atkinson um, is worse. <laughs> <Blackadder's> worse. <laughs> Blackadder's word for this is picket with a true capital P in reference to the crossing of the line. And Baldrick's moment, I have a cunning plan, sir. And Blackadder gives it his first of the, is it, a, is it as cunning as a cunning folk witch from the Middle Ages who's created a doll out of rags and twigs that specifically replicates the hearts of all the other cunning folk witches in her village with which to inflict her own dark magic whenever she so wishes? Well, I don't know about that, sir. Don't know about witches and broomsticks and whatnot, but it does it does put some different ingredients together in a cauldron of some such. And Blackadder says, I suppose that'll do. Let's hear it. What if we were to take all the people that think they're not being paid enough and took all the people that are deciding what to pay them and put them in a room together to talk about what might be possible to pay each other? I think you mean to suggest practicing the art of compromise, Baldrick. I suppose I do, sir. You've got more chance of convincing George that Ian Beefy Botham wouldn't compete a clean sweep of the Australians in the next Test Set series single-handedly with his right hand tied behind his back. No, we'll just have to settle this the old-fashioned way. What's that, sir? Dogged conservatism, Baldrick. There isn't actually, there isn't actually a last scene for this one, Sheppy. It's just um, the strike lasted years, so I just need to think about something there. Yeah, right. To workshop that. That's. That's lovely. Uh, quick aside, the um, comic strip, I don't know if you ever watched any of those, yeah. um, but that, that, they did the very nice one with Strike and, and Scargirl as well. Um, oh, so nice. there's a nice kind of crossover of some of the players. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah very nice. On YouTube, it? nice yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love your Baldrick so much, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 I want you to just speak like that forever now, actually. <laughs> uh, that's who you are to me. <laughs> oh, Amazing. Amazing. Forthep is called incontinent, with a very important space between the in and the continent. Mm. Blackadder and the team are sent to Brussels to discuss European contributions being reduced. Um, Thatcher, uh, i.e. Richardson, is asking for the UK's contributions to the EEC, as it was then, rather than the EU, to be adjusted. Warning that otherwise she would withhold VAT payments. That's, that's historically accurate. Um, I want my money back was Thatcher's line, and I can imagine um, Miranda Richardson screaming that as a petulant sort of kid as well. Um, there's nah. so, so many opportunities for little knowing winks to Brexit and what's to come in the future. I haven't really done much with that, but um, I've actually got here the um, uh, actually, I've got the cameos. Um, Gad Elmala um, as the French PM Raymond Bear. He's in a few things. Um, it, it, he's just a, a reasonably famous French comedian, so I just thought him as the, the French PM of the day. Nice. Baldrick's best moment in this one. I have a cunning plan, sir. Yes, Baldrick. What if we were all just friends, sir, and just visited each other when we could and tried to look out for each other? I'm afraid, Baldrick, ever since Caesar's flip-flop landed on our shores in 55 BC, nice little check to Sheppies, um, uh, <laughs> uh, 
We've been at cross purposes with our continental cousins, and the chances of a reconciliation are as likely as Paul, Ringo, and George saying, Hui Yoko, fancy picking up that Rickenbacker and filling in for a quick rendition of Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey at Madison Square Garden. Anyway, that's my little Atkinson. That's amazing. <laughs> the Atkinson word is, I think, boule et le juise. It's just a Belgian meatball recipe, so it's just le juise. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's that. I haven't got a last scene for that one either. I'll move quickly on to episode five. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, centering on, uh, I suppose they just, they, we can imagine they create enough chaos to trigger Brexit several years later. Um, mm-hmm. the, I love, by the way, how Baldrick's cunning plan stuff has its own running thing within that frame of, of his whole simplistic, beautiful, naive, yes. What a good idea! Um, I like all of that. It's it's very nice. He's my uh, weirdly saying he's my least favorite. He's kind of becoming my MVP as you go through, isn't it? It's so funny. Um, <laughs> um, episode five is called Bottle, um, centering on the Thatcher Thatcher Milk Snatcher scandal, um, where she sponsored legislation to eliminate the free milk program for students over the age of seven. And um, of course, it comes out of Chancellor Darling's budget. And the trio, our trio of George Blackers and um, Boulders, are sent to a local school for a day and parents' evening as a goodwill publicity stunt. And Baldrick and George fall into old versions of themselves, Baldrick actually getting in with the cool kids in the school, and George, funny enough, as similar to yours, being teased mercilessly by those cool kids <laughs> and beaten up, you know, and tricked and all sorts, and with Baldrick. Um, Blackadder, I put, has more than a little chemistry with one of the teachers, a Mrs. Bob. That's just the name, but it's definitely her. And it's pure 80s grain chill vibes. Um, yeah, nice. I've put the best pop out and make it. Well, the, the cameos, I should say, are Gabrielle Glaister as Mrs. Bob. So she's back. And um, David Mitchell as an angry dad. So I've got Mitchell and Webb. Uh, you got them all going on. And um, I feel like he's. I can see him as an angry dad. (laughs) (laughs) All about the milk snatching. And best pop out and make a couple line just after briefing, after the briefing to his own team uh, about what they've got to do. And this is still in the deputy PM office at the beginning. George says wistfully, I say, Blackadder, I'm actually a bit miffed that we've taken the milk off the kiddiewinks. It was a bit of a highlight when Matron would bring in the bottles and we'd all giggle at each other's milk moustaches and snotty Charlie Higginbotham would play hide the straw. <laughs> the caps alone were worth almost as much as a marble. Yes, George, I'm afraid our fearless leader cares about as much about the potential calcium deficiency of the future generations as the sleeping partners of the Wham Boys worry about making them a cup of tea before they go-go. And have to report <laughs> on this one, the three of us have been hung out a little like a trio of yo-yos. Baldrick enters, yo-yo, thank you, sir. I'll remember to pack one of those. Back at it, it says, God help me. This is starting to feel like the tension. Um, the Atkinson word of the show, of course, is Bob with two capital B. Um, just three parents meeting when they're circling one another for a cheeky snog, he and Mrs. Bob. And for the avoidance of any doubt, just to make sure there's no Mr. Bob 
that's how the, the Bob is said. <laughs> um, Baldrick's moment. I have a cunning plan. I have a cunning plan. What if we took all the fizzy drinks in the world and emptied them out and filled them up with milk and then put the caps back on the fizzy drinks so that none of the kids would know the difference and we save their teeth and everyone would be happy, sir? What about the taste, Baldrick? We'd add sugar, sir, and the colour. We could dye it, <laughs> sir. And the milkiness? Oh, I hadn't thought about that, sir. What a surprise. And the last scene actually has the three of them kicked out of the assembly and they're on a stool outside milking Bessie outside the assembly hall in the car park. And George says, see, told you we'd show him, sir. And Miss Bob walks past and gives a shrug to Blackadder. Look, and George says, look at Balder, sir. Just give that tea to squeeze. And Blackadder, sleep with his seeds rolled up, obliges and gets a squirt of milk on his eye for his troubles. You can imagine the evils he's giving George after this. Final ep, episode six, nukes, spell N-double-O-K-S. The plot here is to help end the Cold War once and for all, Blackadder, Borders and George are sent out to America to assist the Reagan administration's disarmament process. Things take a turn when some haphazard administration by Baldrick has the team accused of espionage for the Soviets. We got cameos from Ty Burrell from Modern Family as Ronald Reagan and Alexei oh, nice. Gorbachev. <laughs> uh, Alexei Sales, Gorbachev, too, Sheppy, and then JB. Oh, double Smooth. perfect. <laughs> JB Smooth is in this one as well. Um, and I'll, and he's a prisoner, and I'll tell you where he fits in in a minute. Um, so the Atkinson word of this one is Gorby. <laughs> Gorbachev. And the pop out and make a couple line is, and this is my weakest, by the way, so apologies in advance, but it's also the longest. Oh, but the cast is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the couple line is, American cuisine, how can I put this baldric? Imagine you plucked a slice of roast beef dripping with the richest, stockiest gravy from the ceramic surface of the finest bone china and enclosed peg that slice to a washing line for 20 days in the sun, then yanked it off the line, allowed the Royal Tap Dancing Society to practice their shuffle balls for three straight hours on top of it, put the remaining meat through a grinder, mixed it with as many spare eyeballs, tongues and testicles as possible, Throw in a stale onion and the egg yolk of a chicken that's never seen the sky, and you have a patty fit for two stale buns and a slice of plastic cheese substitute. Audrey, sitting next to him, is eating a burger and says, Does that mean you won't be wanting my pickle today, sir? The last scene is um, they've been disowned by Thatcher, the Queen, and Mother Russia herself. And Blackadder is tried by the American courts and forced to do the one thing he can only do to stay alive, which is nothing. He pleads the fifth, and we end the series with the trio forced to spend their days in prison in orange jumpsuits. Baldrick's moment is actually in the last in the cell in the last scene, and he says, I have a cunning plan, sir. And George says, Baldur's, I don't want to hear it. We're done for. See, you're done for. Baldrick says, well, <laughs> I'll grab my chest and pretend to roll around on the floor. And when the guard comes in, you grab his gun and hold him hostage. And you, me and First Minister George walk him through the prison and out of the front door into freedom, sir. 
Blackadder slaps his thigh. Baldrick, that is a terrible plan. Baldrick's a bit hurt and goes, what's wrong with the plan? And George says, I think Baldrick might be onto something here. The key thing here, Sheppy, is a prisoner in a cell behind them has been listening to Baldrick's plan the whole time. This prisoner is J.B. Smooth. And J.B. is not going to say, he doesn't say a word this whole scene. He just nods to himself as Baldrick's talking through his plan. Sort of thing. <laughs> and as Blackadder starts his response to dismiss Baldrick's plan, um, J.B. pretends to clutch his chest and ex executes Baldrick's plan perfectly in the background, successfully. <laughs> <laughs> and in the foreground, Blackadder's taken apart the idea. And, um, and Blackadder's saying, George, 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 for starters, have you even seen Baldrick attempt acting? And uh, Baldrick is uh, really defending himself here. He, he says, Sir George said that my portrayal of Hamlet at the Parliament Christmas Review reminded him of Sir Laurence Olivier. And uh, Blackadder just says, Yes. Your articulation was off. The emotional range was terrible. And the less said about your posture, then the better, really. But otherwise, <laughs> and uh, Baldrick just says, I think it was the tight, sir. And Burkett says, quite. And during all of this, J.B. Smooth is in the background, breaking out and celebrating. And we just see him out of the prison. Um, now, that is the end, Sheppy, of my Blackadder. But I have been thinking it would be really um, quite sweet to um, kind of go off on one a bit, maybe because Blackadder is not shy of stealing quips here and there from itself, is it? And repeating a few beats. Why Why couldn't we take some of right. the old speckled gym and like, would you like us to leave a pause between flicking the switch, Blackers, on your execution chair and all that sort of stuff in this episode, maybe? And I'd love to write something where, yes. um, you know, they, they managed to get out, but then also then double back and set off the nukes that then end the world or something Baldrick, something somehow you know bring brings the, the end of civilization could be quite a fun way to end a blackadder but um, but anyway but as it stands we have jb smooth dancing in the background and the and the three haggling in the foreground yeah <laughs> probably yeah it's, it's a it's a more optimistic it's still not good for the heroes but it is more optimistic than the end of the world so yeah but i mean i wouldn't put it past I wouldn't put it past uh, angry Elton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, that. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so thick of it as well, of course, and all of that. And yes, yes, Prime Minister, and all of that. All the ingredients, all and in the eighties. Yeah. Of course, each episode being totally topical of, of, of things and so forth. Uh, great. And you know, you need a second season for Argentina. Um, it's great. Um, 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 there's, that's the thing with that show. she's just the content generator isn't she <laughs> yeah. so um, wonderful 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 uh, really uh, and again yeah spot on spot on I could see it all um, I, I, I loved it loved it I, loved them I would all. love I loved to wallow in this with you Sheppy I'd love to wallow in this like I I literally did one Melchi moment, which is the barber. You know, I'd love to have done more Melchi. Yeah. Like, I just, I, 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 I would love to just wallow in this world. It's so fun to build on those iconic characters, yeah. isn't it? It's just so fun. Um, yeah. 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 It's lovely. Um, listen, I, I, I didn't say earlier as well. I, I need to shout out the Christmas special, the, um, the Ebenezer, yeah. um, Christmas 
Christmas Carol episode, but it's really good. And that's it. That's it. It's just I saw it last Christmas for the first time in years and years, and it holds up, and I liked it. And it was made between three and four. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, it's very nice. And there's a really funny thing, which is totally thrown away. Can't really see it, but one bit of with Nursey's face is uh, is amazing. Uh, so it's amazing. There's something there around Nursey, right? That is, you know, the, the, the gags, the quit, the, the interplay, the snarkiness. It's all perfect and brilliant, and all of that. But there's something very specific about something like a Nursey being funny and an expression being funny and then recognizing yeah that's that's funny and it might be subjective it might just be our little troop that finds that funny but let's put it in and see and then as the viewer when you watch someone like nursey and she does a little expression she does that thing it's like <laughs> holy shit they're speaking to my soul these guys get what i think's funny too i haven't even realized it necessarily yet or at least has been a secret for us like do you know what i mean to think it's funny and then they've yes. gone and projected it for us and that's that that's even more special in some ways i think it's really cool yeah yeah it's it's the same when wavelength connection and it yeah it's nice and when you spot it it's like that that's the, nice. the muppets do yeah. that all yeah. the time right the muppets do that all the time with little expressions that they recognize and realize and it just it's the yes. magic of that you know so yeah so cool yeah it's it's so true and yeah that's it it captures it captures everything and when it relates to you on that level it, yeah it's very satisfying so yes jimmy a thousand times yes we both have our dogs clambering at our sides okay uh, should we do the final order of business now, Miss and Sheps, you mentioned earlier that this is something you you almost took off me if you like because it's kind of a me suggestion sort of and um what I'm about to do to you, I'll never be forgiven for. Um, but there, <laughs> there we go. We have to deal with it. We're at a big milestone episode, Sheps. Next, it's the 50th pitch, which technically, technically means we'll be seeing our 99th and 100th pitches in the episode two. Which Isn't is that crazy? Um, so I, it's, a, it's kind of a one for us, really, to be honest. And it's one I feel really naughty, but let's just hold hands and go across the line together because it's kind of the two of us doing it really um so i would like shepherd um, <laughs> it's a Thelma and louise moment <laughs> we will go off the cliff with this one for sure um the almost literally uh i would like uh you and me to come up with a roger moore james bond escapade please <laughs> and you can set that <laughs> any time you like it can be live and let die it can be moonraker it can be any version of more you like oh my god and i've got to tell you i did not see that coming i'm leading towards moonraker i've got to say but i don't know what happened when i finally sit down to pen to paper but like yeah i i feel like i'm gonna go a bit silly that's helpful for you to um, you, you might want to lean into the nails of more, or you might not. It's your full discretion. You know, my immediate thought was Man with the Golden Gun. Like, uh, yeah, that, that, that nails you. Well, so I, I might not, don't hold me to that, but that was my first thought. <laughs> but it feels like a fun one to do for now. So, yeah, why not? Well, lovely, isn't Jimmy? Absolutely. My goodness. 
let's let's do that. That sounds nice. <laughs> Cracking chaps. And how the bloody devil do we? Uh, do you have a cunning plan for how we can set, sign ourselves off, chaps? As always, I have no plan, cunning or otherwise. I never give it any thought uh, because if I did, I'd be here all day. Well, Sheppy, look, you were kind enough to say to me I did a decent melchie, so maybe I should just attempt a little bit. <laughs> oh, God, that hit me in the sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs>